here it goes. All the people that wanted me to chug hard liquor, this chug is for everyone, for all my 1,100 plus subscribers, for all the haters, and all the races. Oh my God, I think we're on the air. This is somewhat unprecedented. Oh, thank you, Alex. Manufacturing Descent. Since 1996, this is hell, and on this week's hell, a recycler is in prison for trying to save us from electronic waste, so it's time we re-evaluate re re our relationship with media. Wow, that was tough to say. The city of Flint's toxic water crisis can happen to any city unless federal and state officials recalibrate their responsibility to local governments. The end of civilization is coming soon, which means it's time to consider what we want the new civilization to be. A revolution is happening right now, and it might be the alternative system we've been waiting for. Degenerate artists are fighting fascism in the age of Trump. And I'll go all pro-war, as I've actually found something that we desperately need to launch a war against. And we need to do it now. That's all during this week's live four-hour edition of This Is Hell which I am proud to say, I believe, is over the air right now, which is really fantastic. The last couple of weeks we've been having issues with the computer and transmitter, but right now I think we have a radio station that's actually broadcasting. Our first guest this week on This Is Hell is Maximilian Alvarez, the Poverty of Theory columnist at The Baffler, where his most recent writing is entitled The Death of Media, The Planet Chokes on Electronic Waste, and a Recycler Goes to Prison. Makes sense. Somebody's trying to get rid of all the world's toxic electronic waste that is harmful to environmental and human health. So we send him to prison for 18 months for trying to recycle the waste. Actually... That doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but it does to a judge who ruled in favor of Microsoft who also believes that makes sense. Yeah, that Microsoft, the one started by Bill Gates, who's going around claiming to be an environmentalist with his billion-dollar-plus hedge fund that created to fight climate change. We'll learn all about the right-to-repair movement and the way in which we need to reconsider our relationship with media, which is dictating our future and ideas about progress. When we talk to Maximilian, who is currently a dual Ph.D. candidate in the Departments of History and Comparative Literature at the University of Michigan, Maximilian is on the National Steering Committee of the Campus Anti-Fascist Network and co-founded the local chapter in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Maximilian is unapologetically socialist and obsessed with cats. Following our talk with Maximilian and the way we relate to and deal with media, we'll hear from journalist Anna Clark, author of The Poisoned City, Flint's Water, and the American Urban Tragedy. 
State and federal governments have turned their backs on cities, and 50 years after the publication of the Kerner Report, which, as Anna writes, urged the country to recommit to its cities and rebuild them as places of opportunity, continue to go into decline due to lack of government resources, resources that are used to plug state budget gaps instead of addressing the real needs of the people, needs like water that isn't contaminated with deadly toxins. While the Kerner Report unequivocally stated, quote, there can be no higher priority for national action and no higher claim on the nation's conscience. The nation has apparently gone unconscious when it comes to cities across the U.S., and one chapter in that legacy of unconsciousness was the Flint toxic water tragedy. But as Anna points out, lead is one toxic legacy in America's cities. Another is segregation, secession, redlining, and rebranding. This is the art and craft of exclusion. We built it into the bones of our cities as surely as we laid lead pipes. The cure, Anna argues, is inclusion. Anna was a correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review as part of its United States pro project for nearly five years. Anna edited a Detroit anthology, which was a 2015 Michigan notable book. Anna received the 2017 Excellence in Environmental Journalism Award from the Great Lakes Environmental Law Council. And after our return to the Flint toxic water crisis with Anna Clark, we'll have the return of Roy Scranton, author of We're Doomed, Now What? Essays on War and Climate Change. Life has become meaningless. Or at least Roy thinks it has in our age of climate change. So how can we get meaning back into our lives when the world around us is slowly and steadily being destroyed? And what do you do if, like Roy, you have a kid while staring into the face of a global apocalypse? What kind of world can you leave behind for them if the world you are in was already screwed before even you were born? It's all pretty depressing, but Roy believes there still may be a way humans can survive. Not this current human civilization of tearing nature apart limb by limb. No, this civilization needs to die, and we need a new one, and fast as we're already seeing the devastating effects of climate change. Roy was on This Is Hell back in 2015 to talk about his book, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, Reflections on the End of Civilization, which was based on an award-winning essay. Roy teaches at the University of Notre Dame. We'll begin our fourth and final hour of this week's This Is Hell by speaking with Matt Broomfield and Tolhilden, members of the Internationalist Commune of Rojava, you may remember, at least, us talking to the uh, writer and Kurdish women's activist Dilar Derek back in 2015 about the incredible experiment in direct democracy that was taking place in the North Syrian autonomous area of Rojava. Well, that revolution for a feminist and ecological society, more in tuned with nature, fighting back against the depravities of capitalist modernity continues to grow and attract people from all around the world. And the current way that capitalist modernity is being challenged is with the planting of thousands of trees in Rojava. Find out how planting trees can be a revolutionary action when we talk to Tolhilden and Matt, whose internationalist commune of Rojava is in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign for their new book, Make Rojava Green Again building an ecological society. To support that crowdfunding, visit internationalistcommune.com. This week, Matt also posted the article, Here's Why We're Planting Trees in Northern Syria, at The Independent. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with musician Ted Serrata, 
or Sirota. Sirota. I'm going to go with Sirota. Uh, drummer and founder of the organization Degenerate Artists Against Fascism. What makes those artists degenerate, and how are they challenging fascism in the Trump era? We'll try to figure all that out when we talk to Ted. Ted will also be performing with Dan Chase at our annual anniversary party next Saturday. Saturday, July 21st, at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The party begins at 3 p.m., and Ted and Dan will be performing at 4. We'll tell you more about the party in a moment, but you can find out about Ted's Degenerate Artists Against Fascism at Facebook.com slash Degenerate Artists. So that's a recycler is in prison for trying to save us from electronic waste, so it's time we reevaluate our relationship with the media. The city of Flint's toxic water crisis can happen to any city unless federal and state officials recalibrate their responsibility to local governments. The end of civilization is coming soon, which means it's time to consider what we want with that new civilization. A revolution is happening right now, and it might be an alternative system we've all been waiting for. Degenerate artists are fighting fascism in the age of Trump. And I'll go all pro-war. All that stuff, plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, the question from hell. A whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to Twist Off Knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Join us next Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music. That's Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m. and going all day and night. There's going to be food, a raffle, some free giveaways, and a whole lot more. That's This Is Hell's third annual 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music, next Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3, going all day and night. You can find out more by going to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and clicking on our event page. If you are planning on joining us at the party, tell us you're going at our event page and invite all your friends, acquaintances, associates, and even the hangers-on. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, my wife told me that you can... Both embrace death and wear deodorant at the same time. Did you know that? Uh, yes, I think that's actually what you are doing when you're using deodorant. <laughs> you're embracing the death of your body odor. Sorry for stinking so much, everyone, in the last three weeks. I'll uh, try to do better. This is Hell is broadcast live without interruption on WNUR. 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment. Streaming live online or our website, thisishell.com. Podcast shortly after at the same place, thisishell.com. Now airing an abbreviated one-hour version on Sunday mornings in Moscow, Idaho, on KRFP and on Lumpen Radio in Chicago's South Side. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure hey leo's here too oh hey leo's here i didn't know that hey leo how you doing chuck says how are you oh, good. <laughs> he also said he didn't have anything to say but next week he will he was in the dark i didn't see him uh this week's hangover cure is indonesia's and singapore's favorite hangover cure kaya toast which actually i can personally vouch for this because it's really good in the article here's how the world cures its hangovers with food posted at the australian website sbs.com.au they report that kaya is a sweet coconut jam, and in Indonesia, it goes on toast with sugar, coconut milk, pandan, and sometimes a light spread of butter. Feeling extra hungry or extra hungover, some people order a side of soft-boiled eggs alongside kaya toast for dipping. Pandan is a plant with bright green leaves that are used for cooking, according to Savour.com. For the uninitiated, tasting pandan for the first time is like learning a word for an emotion you've always struggled to describe. <laughs> 
Floral like vanilla, but with a grassy lilt and a tropical bouquet that verges on coconut plus a distinct note of, is that bubblegum? Pandan, also called screw pine leaf, is an ingredient worth getting to know. So that makes this week's hangover cure Indonesia's and Singapore's favorite hangover cure, Kaya Toast, the ingredients of which include screw pine leaf. And I just won that bet that I could get Alex to say screw pine on this week's show. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. There's a war I completely support, 100% endorse. The war intends to obliterate the enemy, killing all of them off, once and for good and forever. All of our most violent acts must rain down upon our shared enemy and wipe its kind off the face of the earth. The war is over a wall, the biggest wall and the best wall, most well-reinforced and magnificent obstacle the world has ever seen that makes China's Great Wall look like, well... Britain's Hadrian Wall. That is to say, the Great Wall of China is still cool. It's just a hell of a lot easier to step over Hadrian's Wall. On the other side of the wall, I wish to attack in a full-blown, all-out, total conflict of a war, is something that was mentioned on last week's show with a journalist who writes about this wall in her new book. On the most recent episode of This Is Hell, we were introduced to that wall during our interview with Eileen Truax, author of We Built the Wall, How the U.S. Keeps Out Asylum Seekers from Mexico, Central America, and Beyond. And it's not Trump's wall, but all our wall. And it's a wall that is more powerful than any Trump could ever fantasize. It's what Eileen described as the wall the United States has built up around itself on a solid foundation of arrogance, hatred, greed, some may even say exceptionalism, which creates an impenetrable wall that we must attack as soon as possible. I found a war I'm finally willing to fully approve, and that's the war on the wall of indifference, the wall of not caring, the wall of not considering our impact on any and everyone, especially outside our borders but also within against the low end of our capitalist caste system. You've all seen the wall. It's the big one you see on the highway around burned-out neighborhoods that says, hey, it's not your fault. There's also one that stretches across all our borders and throughout our media that says, who cares? Here, I'll prove it to you. The United States is currently involved in six wars. Six wars. Arguably seven, but let's just say six. That is wars we know of. I can't imagine what the U.S., the CIA, the military are doing secretly under Trump. But can you name the six nations where the U.S. is currently fighting? I'll give you a couple of seconds to think about it. The six nations where the U.S. military is currently engaged in killing people are Afghanistan, Northwest Pakistan, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, and the one I didn't get, Libya. That's the American intervention in Libya, which began as part of the Second Libyan Civil War. Hell, even I apparently don't care enough to know all six nations we're currently bombing the hell out of. And all I do all week long is research, read, and write about the most hellish things on the damn planet. I got one out of six wrong. I thought for sure the sixth would be Iraq. And I bet there are a lot of Iraqis that would probably think the same. But if I got one out of six wrong... Maybe there's only one-sixth of me, 16.7%, that's still indifferent to everyone outside the United States. Hey, that's 83.3% of me that cares. That's something. That indifference makes us ignorant and worse, dangerous to all our global neighbors. That wall leads to wars, wars I don't support. 
Here's another question that reveals our indifference. How many countries have authoritarian regimes and authoritarian regimes that the United States currently supports? How many authoritarian regimes does the U.S. currently support? Based on ratings and definitions determined by Freedom House, as of last year, the U.S. supported 36 dictatorships. And that's out of only 49 dictatorships. I mean, 49 is a lot for the number of dictatorships we have globally, considering there's only 195 nations, which means more than one in four nations around the world are authoritarian states. But while one in four countries in the world are dictatorships, the U.S. is backing nearly three in four of those authoritarian states. Now, keep in mind, the number of dictatorships the U.S. backs may be as low as 22. So the United States may only be supporting about half the world's dictatorships. But I'm certain I could not name those 22 countries, and I doubt you can either. And if you can, then tell me the names of the dictator of each one of those countries. Of course you can't do that. I can't. But if I cared, I would. I'd have that list memorized, and I'd be real pissed about the list. But I'll give you a head start on your list of nations and dictators the U.S. supports. The U.S. supports Djibouti's Gela regime, Qatar's House of Thani, Transnistria's notorious Darmendra clan, and Singapore's People's Action Party. And if you wrote those down or were nodding your head while mumbling to yourself that you'd heard of all of those, you haven't, because I made up Transnistria's notorious Darmendra clan. And personally, I don't recognize Transnistria as a state. You're probably thinking I made that up too, but I didn't. I mean, you can recognize the Pridnestrovian Moldavian Republic of Transnistria all you want. But that's on your hands, not mine. And yes, Transnistria and the self-proclaimed Pridnestrovian Moldavian Republic. Yeah, that's a real thing. But this is minutia, right? Mere trivia? I mean, we can't be expected to know every dictator the U.S. supports or the nations where they rule with public money from the U.S. or the abuses they commit and who benefits in the U.S. from supporting these brutal regimes. But if we can't be expected to know such supposedly trivial details, then why do I not know Prayut Chana Ocha is the dictator the U.S. supports in Thailand? But I do know Harry Chidi was the first baseball player to ever be traded for a player to be named later when that player to be ended up being the same player, namely Harry Chidi. Harry Chidi was traded for a player to be named later, and the player to be named later was Harry Chidi. And yes, that trade was between Cleveland and the Mets, because one team has a history of racism embedded in their team nickname, and the Mets are historically stupid. Our knowledge is full of things that really don't matter, while things that really do matter are simply ignored. That's what the tall wall of indifference does. It keeps us from not knowing who is committing the horrible crimes and where they are committing those crimes in our name, causing the victims to either hate us or, for many, flee to the U.S., only to be turned away or, worse, criminalized and disappeared. For many, that wall has already closed in. They've built a wall that only goes around their own home and family, doesn't go much further. Others have built walls around their neighborhoods, Some have built them around their cities or maybe even counties or states or regions. Some have built those walls around their race or religion. But we've all built the wall of indifference around the United States, unfortunately. 
for my gung-ho pro-war spirit will never attack that wall of indifference because that's what props up our economy. Not caring about the suffering of others is what makes us so relatively rich compared to the rest of the world. And we all know it deep down. Whenever we put on a pair of jeans or use a smartphone we know was created with slave labor, we'll never tear that wall of indifference down. We need it to maintain our luxuries that we've convinced ourselves give us happiness. We'll never have a war I can support, and definitely not a war against the wall of indifference. And the worst part is, it's because inside our wall of indifference, we just don't care. And that's why this is hell. And this week's question from hell is, why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? Why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? All replies get read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins the first new This Is Hell t-shirt, which also is available to buy or win at the party. Again, the question from Mel is, why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, going from 3 p.m. until the wee hours of the night. Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a recycler in prison for trying to save us from electronic waste. The city of Flint's toxic water crisis can happen to any city. The end of civilization is coming soon. A revolution is happening right now. Degenerate artists are fighting fascism. That plus rotten history, listener feedback. Alex, we'll find out what Alex has been up to on social media. Question from Hell. A whole bunch of people want to thank for sharing and supporting This Is Hell. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly... Gnome's gone insane. This is hell when someone is imprisoned for trying to recycle electronic waste. It's time for us as a society to rethink our relationship with the media that is increasingly dictating our idea of progress and what our future will be. Here to help us have some second thoughts about exactly where this relationship is and where it's heading, Maximilian Alvarez is the Poverty of Theory columnist at The Baffler, where his most recent writing is entitled The Death of Media, The Planet Chokes on Electronic Waste, and a Recycler Goes to Prison. Welcome to This is Hell, Maximilian. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for being uh, for having me on. Uh, no problem, sir. Should I call you Max, Maximilian? What do you go by? <laughs> uh, we can save time and just go with Max. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. All those extra syllables will really <laughs> slow this interview down. So uh, <laughs> you write uh, about Eric Lundgren and the the great charge that was leveled against him ultimately amounts to criminal recycling. How is Eric Lundgren a criminal recycler? What is criminal recycling in the case of Eric Lundgren? Uh, well, um, in the case of Eric Lundgren specifically, um, you know, I'll, I'll go into that in a second, but I would say that, you know, uh, I think a, a good rule of thumb for determining what criminal recycling is, is any form of recycling that's going to chip into the, you know, profit model of the big tech industry that operates on um, kind of basic uh, necessities of planned obsolescence and duping people into throwing out good equipment and buying new equipment that they don't need. Um, you know, Eric is a, you know, well-renowned e-recycler. He's been in the game for a while. He's still a young guy. Um, he made his name, you know, by building a, a car out of recycled parts that ended up having a longer driving range than 
all these nice hybrid cars, including a Tesla uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, he's seen a lot of, you know, the impact that e-waste has on, uh, on our world and, you know, is engaged in a number of endeavors to try to curtail the destruction that, you know, our e-waste production is wrecking on, on the world. And unfortunately, one of those endeavors, uh, you know, ended up kind of being his undoing and it probably wasn't the one that he expected. Um, but to give a, a bit of a snapshot, you know, in 2012, customs agents in um, in Florida seized a shipment um, with Eric's name on it that had 28,000 restored discs. And I'll explain what a restored disc is in a minute. Um, and uh, customs agents presumed that these were counterfeit copies of Windows um, for Dell computers. So they got on the horn, they called Dell. Um, Dell didn't really seem to care but then microsoft got wind of the whole thing and that's when everything blew up um so the department of homeland security um believe set up a sting operation and had a third party offer eric lundgren you know um like about three grand for a shipment of twenty eight thousand restored discs which works out to about 80 80 cents per disc um so eric was hired to you know um deliver these discs, um, shit, had them produced in China, shipped over, um, and then sold them to a third party. And as soon as the sale was complete, then the sting was complete. Then this whole nightmarish scenario started spinning out of control. Um, so with Microsoft's help, U.S. prosecutors um, ended up putting Eric Lundgren in prison for 15 months, um, exacting a $50,000 uh, fine against him for essentially what they claim was, you know, stealing uh, up to upwards of $8 million worth of sales from Microsoft. And this is where it really gets hairy because the technical details really matter here um, because Eric was producing and selling at a low cost these restored discs. What Microsoft and um the U.S. prosecutors argued was that he was counterfeiting and selling fully licensed operating systems, which is just not the case. Um, the big difference is that one of these things is worth next to nothing. The other thing is worth a whole lot. Um, and unfortunately, because of the technical illiteracy of our you know, judicial system um, and because of various missteps on, from Eric's attorneys and, and various disingenuous maneuvers by um, U.S. prosecutors and Microsoft um, technicians, you know, this all just kind of turned into a horrifying Kafka scenario in which Eric Fallon finds himself in prison for essentially a crime he did not commit. You write that as Microsoft has repeatedly noted, it was the United States Attorney's Office in Miami that filed charges against Lundgren after custom agents intercepted a shipment at the center of everything, a shipment of 28,000 disks containing computer wiping software that you can legally download for free. If it was free online, then who needs these disks? Why aren't these users just immediately aware that, oh, well, if I need to fix this computer so I don't have to go throw it into a ditch somewhere, uh, why, can't, why didn't they just simply know that they could download this for free online? Why was there a need for these disks? Well, um, that's the question of the day, right, is that, um, you know, Microsoft makes 
the 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 disc images of the restored discs freely available online. Um, and so I guess I guess to answer that question, I'll take a, a step back and try to explain what a restored disc is really quick. Um, so when you buy a computer, and, and and also keep in mind that you know we're still we're talking about 2011, 2012 type era. Um, so like now these restored discs would kind of be obsolete because people can just put it on a USB stick and that's probably the way they would go. Um, but in 2010, 11 and 12, Eric noticed that, you know, people didn't have a, a kind of general knowledge of how easy it was to just download and burn a restored disc if they lost the one that comes with the new computer that they buy. Um, so when you go and buy a new computer, um, and you pay for it, a big chunk of that cost is actually going towards a license for the operating system software on it, um, like Windows. When you open up the, the, the box of your new computer, you'll typically find a restored disk that will allow you to reinstall the OS if you get a virus or if your computer is just running like crap. Now, this whole reinstallation process only works if you register your OS with a verified license key, which, you know, listeners will recognize as that sticker attached to their computer or the certificate of authenticity is often called. Um, so you can, like I said, you can download the disk images for free um, to burn your own restore disk if you lose the one that comes with your new computer. Um, the problem, though, is that Microsoft does not sell these disks. Um, you know, you, you, you can find a way, like I said, to get, get a hold of the link, download it, burn it yourself, but they're not readily available. Um, so they're kept just closely, uh, just out of sight enough for, you know, lay users to not really know that it's an option. Um, and to, you know, what, 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 what Lundgren did was have thousands of these restored discs printed in China and shipped over to the U S so that repair shops could sell them for cheap to anyone who couldn't make their own or didn't know how to. Um, and, and to be clear here, you know, uh, Eric did commit a crime and he pled guilty to it right out of the gate. Um, if you, if you look at, you know, the, the coverage of this, you'll find that, um, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty clear to determine that the crime he committed was counterfeiting the packaging to make the discs that he produced look exactly like Dell branded ones. Um, so he, he, you know, illegally used, you know, Dell packaging, copyrighted packaging, um, and, you know, even, even though the, the, the intention of this was to kind of assure users who buy these restored discs at a refurbisher didn't have to worry that they were putting some sort of counterfeit malware, you know, like on their computer, you know, it was still a crime. Um, and, and, you know, it was an unnecessary one, but it was, it was the one that ended up getting Eric tangled in this web. But like I said before, the, the, the really um Kafka's turn here was that um you know the the government prosecution turned this into uh, a a criminal case in which Eric was being accused of counterfeiting fully licensed operating system um which are, which are worth which is just the, the cost of you know an entirely new licensed Microsoft package and that is absolutely not what he was producing um Eric was not producing licenses. He you you he did had no intention whatsoever of counterfeiting licenses. He was just producing restored disks so that if people had viruses on their computer, they could just pop it in, wipe their computer, and then after that step, they would have to go back to their original licensing key 
and re-register their OS. And that was not something that Eric provided, but it was what the prosecution convinced the judge that Eric um, had produced. You're right. No matter how you slice it, Eric Eric Lundgren is in prison for crimes he did not commit, even though, as you said, he admitted to the other crime. Was the other crime of the copyright infringement, did that come with a far less penalty than the crime that he was found guilty of? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's been tough, uh, but, I, but I suppose revealing to talk to, you know, people after writing this piece, because I've gotten been very happy to see, you know, a lot of sympathetic people who hadn't heard about this case, you know, people who want to know how they can write to Eric in prison or what they can do to advocate for him, how they can get involved in, you know, rights repair and stuff like that. But I've also seen a lot of people who, you know, in, especially in the political moment that we're in, have been a, a, an obscenely dangerous and blasé way of thinking about, you know, like the distinctions of crime levels, right? Where, People are like, well, he he did break the law, so you know, I guess that justifies you know, like whatever sentence was passed down. And and you know, anyone familiar with the case would be like, no, that's like saying that you know, um, a kid who like steals a pack of gum, uh, suddenly you know, like is being charged for like you know, grand theft, right? And and they're not the same at all. I mean, this should have been just a, a um, you know, like a, a civil case between two parties that carried like a, a fine and Eric would have been happy to pay that. Um, but instead it became, you know, like a government uh, mediated criminal case that carried, you know, just a far greater sentence than anything Eric, I think, could have imagined at the beginning of this. And I want to get to the larger cultural aspects of that. So you write that uh, it's because our our justice system, the reason that he has been found guilty of crimes he did not commit, commit, is because our justice system, by being so resolutely blind to or worse complicit in the fundamental business model of the tech industry's sprawling corporate oligopoly, defers to the entities that control the industry itself, just like the rest of us do. We are entrusting our ignorance to those who profit directly from it. What explains why we do that or why a judge would defer to industry and not avoid deferring uh, to either side? Do we, are we all kind of complicit in this finding of Eric Lundgren guilty and that we all kind of, their, their culture or society right now, defers to whatever big tech tells us? I think, I mean, I, I think we are to an extent, but this is also where... Um, you know, we open on to the, the larger issue that is being held up by the right to repair movement, right, is that, you know, we are complicit in this. And, you know, over the past year with all the hype about Russian hacking and Cambridge Analytica and stuff like that, people have become, you know, gradually more conscious, self-conscious, or at least, you know, like felt a slightly more guilty about um, how little attention we actually pay to like the user agreements that we click OK on, you know, or the the um, kind of directions we get when we buy new equipment and stuff like that. Um, but what um, Eric's case and what you know the right to repair movement um, and really show is that our complicity aside, the, the much larger problem here is that you know big tech, along with you know the government acting as essentially like you know its, it's enforcement arm, has monopolized so many aspects of the tech market. That anyone who tries to, you know, kind of intervene in that, anyone who tries to, uh, you know, provide consumers with better options, right, has the, has the book thrown at them. 
Um, and, you know, I think in, in researching this, I think one of the most horrifying things for me was when I um, was when I saw the totally seamless way the U.S. government operated as, as I said, an enforcement arm of the tech industry. So the DOJ, DHS, uh, Customs Control, it's all uh, it's almost as if like corporations are their clients. Um, it's almost as if like, you know, the Department of Homeland Security is a de facto corporate agent of companies like Apple, which, uh, you know, to be fair, I guess they basically are. You know, if, if people want to go deeper into this and, and even look past Lundgren's case, you know, I'd point them to um, a story in 2013 where you can actually see footage of ICE raiding dozens of smartphone repair shops in South Florida. And they're actually accompanied by Apple representatives. And they're seizing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in so-called uh, counterfeit parts. Um, and, you know, if you look at the local news segment, the weirdest thing is that um, at the end of it, they, they essentially become, you know, a mouthpiece for Apple and direct people to, you know, quote, authorized service providers and away from these mom and pop repair shops that are essentially providing a service that in this country has been, you know, taken for granted for our other forms of technology, like cars, right? Like if you had a car in the past and something broke and you didn't want to take it to the dealer, you go to a junkyard. Right, you get like you know a replacement part. You put it in there. It costs about like a third of what it would if you bought a new part, and you know you go on with your life. But in you know the age of new media, there are actually so many restrictions that we don't know about. That if you you know take it to a mom and pop, take your say like your phone, your busted phone with a busted screen. You take that to a mom and pop repair shop because it's like a third of the price of what it would be if you took it to the Apple store. Right, Apple actually has a lot of sinister stuff built into its software and user agreements that can punish you for doing that, punish you for, for trying to, you know, exercise what have traditionally been your rights as a consumer to repair your own stuff. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, going back to the, um, the ice raid, you know, busting into, to these Florida, um, repair shops, right. The, the, I think what, what, you know, people need to realize is that we're essentially living in a, you know, kind of dystopian world already where federal agents can bust down your door with corporate reps. And instead of, you know, reading you your Miranda rights, they'll essentially read you your software user agreement, explain to you the ways that, you know, you are, you are in violation of that. Um, and it, it's always masked in the language of user safety and, you know, um, you know, if you use spare parts or parts in what's called the, the aftermarket, right? A lot of this, uh, a lot of these parts are coming from China because, you know, if you want to replace parts on your on your iPhone or something like that, Apple doesn't sell those parts to you. They only sell them to, you know, refurbishers who have like enrolled in a certain program that involves them paying a lot of money to Apple. Um, and a lot of the other parts and, and um, repair equipment are actually only made available to Apple employees themselves. So they have established a monopoly on repairing your phone, um, repairing your computer and stuff like that. Um, and I think now people are, are with cases like Eric um, and cases like, uh, you know, Jessa Jones, um, people are only starting to kind of realize, in fact, how little ownership they actually have over the devices in their pocket. 
You write how there is the real end game of tech giants like Microsoft, Apple, Google, HP, and Facebook. Theirs is a mission to maintain and expand their monopolized role as dictators of the meaning of progress, insinuating their technologies into more and more spheres of daily life, sucking more and more of the world into the position of playing catch up. What's wrong with the meaning of progress being dictated by technology? After all, hasn't technology always dictated what progress means, even since the cotton gin isn't Microsoft or Google or Facebook doing the same thing that corporations like AT&T or, or, AT&T or Ford or the McCormick Reaper did before them? Uh, yes and no, right? I mean, um, the, the, the history of media technologies is a really fascinating one. I would point people to an emerging um, subfield called media archaeology, which is essentially a, a, a field um, that is based on going into the past and looking at the failed media or the media that were outcompeted, you know, like in their time. And to try to understand, you know, like the, the, the technical operations of those um, technologies themselves. But, you know, like looking at it, you know, in the way that we do with, like, say, evolution, right? You can see a very complex history there of how in each, you know, historical period, certain technologies end up kind of winning out over others. Not just because they're not because they're better a lot of the times, but a lot of times because of, you know, just the historical accidents or because of, you know, other um, interceding factors like political power, economic power and, and so on and so forth. So I think that the, the question you articulated is one that that, I, that is fresh in our heads all the time when we think of big tech, when we think of Silicon Valley. Right. It's. it's it's almost as if, like, you know, the question of progress and the tech question of, like, technical um, sophistication go hand in hand, right? We assume they're both pointing in the same direction. Right? But, but what cases like Eric's and Jesse Jones and, and the right to repair movement show is that, in fact, you know, like, this progress is not being dictated just by, um, you know, what's better for us as consumers or what makes our um, technologies quote unquote, better, because what does better really mean in that sense, right? I mean, like, how can we look at the kind of tech economy that we have now where we're throwing out, you know, this supposedly like the most sophisticated technology that the world has ever seen? We use it for like two years and then chuck it out, right? You know, like how how, how can that itself, you know, like be a sign of like how uh, good and, and right, you know, like the technology that we have today is and that this is the only way it could be? Right. Instead, we have to start asking how the the monopoly these corporations have, and how the state acts as its you know enforcement arm conspire. How these forces conspire to essentially give over the meaning of progress to corporations who, you know, let's be honest, just have at their base you know like a a, a goal of making profit. Right. It's and it's always cloaked in, in the language of, you know, making a better world or um, making life, you know, like easier and and, and so many other functions uh, more seamless to to perform. Right. But but, you know, if we look at the damage that, you know, the e-waste that we're producing because we are engaging in an economy of throw of throwaway culture, you know, and poisoning, you know, the earth like that, that kind of throws a wrench into the gears of, of thinking of this as like, you know, the, the, the seamless and necessary way of technical progress to go. And, you know, um, 
I think, I think one of the things um, to realize too is that you know there, there, there's there's a lot of knowing that the profit motive is there, right, and keeping that up front and center, right. You start to kind of see the the shady aspects to the tech culture that we're all you know a part of, right. You know, electronics today. And cars and then, you know, everything else are becoming more complex. And in that process, they are becoming harder to fix, right? More and more products have computerized functionality built into them. Um, and I was, I was, when I was researching this piece, I was looking up at like, you know, these, these smart products that, you know, just seem so unnecessary and dumb, right? So like, you know, there are smart fridges now, uh, essentially like a, fridge with a tablet slapped onto it there are smart water bottles that tell you when your water is low um there's a smart hairbrush with a computer built into it there are smart egg trays that tell you how long your eggs have been in there uh there's a brita filter with a wi-fi connection that'll automatically order new filters for you um there's smart flip-flops there's there's smart luggage one company is even developing a smart condom uh, that measures thrust velocity and tells you it supposedly tells you what if you have STIs. And so we're putting, you know, like this this is what we mean when we say like, you know, oh, things are getting better, right? Big tech is making things smarter. And if you and, and anything can be smarter if you just slap the name smart, you know, like in front of it. Right. But if you like take a step back and look at like who really needs this computer in an egg tray and what is it actually accomplishing? Right. Um, this is what the right to repair legislation, you know, like um, is really kind of putting front and center. It is that um, what is really happening is, in fact, um, you know, big tech is putting its tentacles into more and more spaces of everyday life where we didn't need computerized functionality before. But now we do. And it has, you know, these little bells and whistles on it. But essentially what it does is it makes these products way more expensive and much harder to fix. Right, so you're gonna the the end result isn't efficiency. It isn't you know um, a better user experience. It's you know more money being spent for the stuff that you've been doing all this time. I'm gonna stick with traditionally dumb condoms. I really think that they work just fine. <laughs> yeah, give me a dumb condom any day. <laughs> uh, you write uh, the media holding together the kind of world we've built for the present have acclimated us to a kind of life that is marked for death. How has media acclimated us to a kind of life that is marked for death? Well, let's see. I mean, like, so there's a, there's a big way of looking at that and then, you know, a small way. So I'll try to um, connect the two, um, sticking with, with what we've been talking about so far. Because um, like, the point I wanted to actually make before, um, you know, goes to this question of, of ownership and right. And to understand kind of like how we, our media shape who we are, right. You know, we need to kind of like take a close look at how everything that we've been talking about so far in this segment, you know, hinges on, you know, questions of ownership that, and the ways that we think that ownership is being defined and the ways that actually companies and the technologies that we use are defining ownership for us. Right. So no one knows better than big tech that we are constantly misapplying 20th century notions of property ownership to 21st century realities of licensed use, right? Um, you know, what good is owning something if you can't actually use it? 
Uh, you can you can own a new Dell computer um, or a fancy iPhone, but if you can't use the OS, then you've basically got an expensive paperweight. You know, you can you can own a state of the art John Deere tractor, um, and and in fact, a lot of the right to repair movement is actually hinged on um, you know John Deere tractors and farmers in like Nebraska, Vermont. Um, but if you if you own this big nice tractor. Um, but you're locked out of the computer that makes it work and that allows you to diagnose and fix problems. You basically got, you know, an artificial multi-ton source of shade. And if people want to, like, take a look at this, you know, Vice's motherboard had a really good segment on there where they show how farmers who have these combines that they've used for, you know, decades, and then these, you know, like, new fancy John Deere tractors with computerized functionality and sensors all over the thing, they're like, if this, the second one breaks down, I have to like put it on, um, you know, a flatbed. I have to take it sometimes a hundred miles away. And, you know, like I lose time, I lose crops, I lose money. Right. Um, but they point to like their old ones and they're like, I could still use that one. <laughs> right. Um, so like I said, the, the companies who make these products, they know what's going on, but we're only now just starting to catch up. We're only now just starting to see kind of the, the ways that in fact we already operate you know, unconsciously by using, you know, the technologies that big tech is putting out. And if you want to put a, a hilarious and depressing example on it, you can actually look up, you know, a document John Deere filed with the Copyright Office in 2014, where they say point blank that a farmer who owns a $500,000 combine may own the physical machine. But they only have, um, I think what they call it a, quote, an, an implied user license to the software. And the software has a lock on the operation. And, um, so in effect, they own the tractor. You just get to drive it and pay for the upkeep. Um, and, you know, there, there, there's something called uh, Doctorow's Law, which comes from the Canadian uh, blogger and science fiction writer, um, Cory Corey Doctorow. Uh, and he says, um, I remember it. Uh, he says, like, anytime someone puts a lock on something you own against your wishes and doesn't give you the key, they're not doing it for your benefit. And that's pretty much where we are now. And if you if you own something that someone else has put a lock on and they have the key, you don't own it. Right. They do. Right. And so that's that's, you know, one of the, the, the ways that um, right to repair has been trying to show people that, in fact, the, the we, we keep operating on this kind of outdated notion that we are kind of just purchasing new technologies to enhance the ways that we live. But in fact, the technologies that we purchase are adjusting the ways that we live and, and in fact, um, roping us further into um, a system that is not built necessarily for our benefit, but is built first and foremost to make profit for, you know, the companies that are producing the things that we buy. Right. Um, and you know, to, to again, um, kind of put a, to, to zoom out here, right. You know, when, cause when I talk about, um, the media and, you know, how media impact the ways that we think and act, right. I get a bit theoretical in the second half, um, of the piece, but I think, you know, I try to, I try to pinpoint how, in fact, we think of mediation and media, right. in in, in pretty complex terms on a daily basis, but it's also very limited a very limited way of, of understanding what media are, right? Um, and the main thing, I think, is is that we need to understand 
um, that, you know, our, our way of thinking about media uses a core set of kind of hubristic assumptions about who we are and how we live in the world. All right. So, you know, we understand that media are a middle way between fully formed things that are already are what they are. You know, um, you and I are communicating through media right now, right? The phone in my hand, uh, the phone in your hand, the signals and satellites that make that possible. It's all taken to be a, a, you know, transportation mechanism between two independently defined people who are, you know, passing along fully formed thoughts that popped out of our heads and have been translated into language so we can communicate them to each other. You know, everything is, is in this picture is well-defined and plays its role in the process. But if we take a step towards thinking of media and mediation in a more, you know, elemental way, the way I described the piece, you know, we can start to ask questions about how you and I on either end of this phone, right, are shaping each other by interacting with each other. We can start to ask um, how we and our thoughts are being tweaked and adjusted by the instruments that we're using to become the kind of beings who are adapted to you know, these specific tools. And if we take another step towards thinking of media and mediation um, in a more elemental way, we can start to ask questions about how we are actively participating in an oppressive economy that has incentivized people to build businesses around pulling uh, you know, the, the materials needed to make these phones out of the ground and to build a business model based on um, building products that are going to fall apart in a few years and end up back in the landfill and poisoning the land and earth and water and people, right? So again, if we take a step back, we can start to ask about the ways that these things we buy and these practices we adapt ourselves to are perpetuating a, a cycle in which we are acting upon our ecosystem in a way that will make this planet unlivable for us. You know, basically, we start to thinking about media this way, we start to get a better sense of how things and people and environments interact with each other and shape each other through processes of mediation. Right? We start to, to see ourselves as people, um, as people in the making, right? and we start to appreciate the delicate and and not so delicate ways we shape the world that in turn shapes us right it's this constant kind of back and forth that i try to draw our attention to and and in the end you know the kind of life that we have adjusted ourselves to right by using technologies whose whose functionality by not only using technologies but also engaging in cultural practices right participating uh, and and propping up certain institutions and ways of doing things like all these things mediate a certain way of living, right? A certain throwaway culture that produces more than it needs and poisons the earth, you know, like uh and in such drastic ways, like e-waste that we mentioned earlier, like is the is the largest growing, you know, trash stream in the world right now. Right? You know, the we're 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 producing, you know, millions and millions of metric tons a year of this stuff. Right? And 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 it's and it it really Again, you can zoom out and kind of see the the larger effect that that's having, but it's harder to kind just like the way that we don't understand um, kind of how the media that we use are in fact training us to become accustomed to a world in which we don't actually own the things that are in our pockets, but we're just like kind of paying for a license to use them. 
Um, all these like little things that adjust how we live are also adjusting us to a way of life that is just fundamentally unsustainable. Right. And so, you know, we, we, we focus a lot on, you know, the, the, the big actions that need to be taken um, to, to stem the flow of e-waste and, and to, you know, um, try to, to repair the ecosystem to, to a degree or at least mitigate the damage that we're doing to it now. Right. But, but, you know, I think the hardest thing, you know, there is to really kind of bring to consciousness and, and shape, you know, like people's everyday way of doing things and everyday dependence in tiny ways on these much larger systems and processes that are essentially killing us. And, 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 and thinking of media this way, is, I think, is, is really important and, and kind of taking what we know about media already and then trying to apply that to, you know, all, all these other minute and, and large facets of our lives and the ways that we participate in society and, and the world. We have been speaking with Maximilian Alvarez. He is the Poverty of Theory columnist at The Baffler, where his most recent writing is entitled The Death of Media, The Planet Chokes on Electronic Waste, and a Recycler Goes to Prison. Maximilian is on the National Steering Committee of the Campus Anti-Fascist Network and co-founded the local chapter in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Maximilian is unapologetically socialist and obsessed with his cats. Find out more about Maximilian at activeforgetting.com and follow him on Twitter at Maximilian underscore ALV. As we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Your article even goes into Trump's relationship with the media, President Donald Trump's relationship with the media and the way that he vilifies it. You write that Trump encourages us to be infinitely suspicious of all the ways mediating forces distort the truth as it makes its journey from him to us. Unless, of course, those mediating forces produce a positive image of him. If Trump is making us increasingly suspicious of the mediating forces in our lives, then what explains why Fox News viewers aren't increasingly suspicious of Fox News? How can someone say they don't trust the media? And when asked, they explain... They don't trust the media because Fox News told them not to trust the media. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, um, I have a, I have a line like um, right around there where I say, like, yeah, the fact that that you can watch tons of clips of Sean Hannity, right, who's just like the the living embodiment of like corrupt, ideologically warped corporate media, right? That you can watch him like sit there and slap his belt on the table and rail against the media. Right. It's just like, well, well, like if, if, if you're not media, then what the hell is? <laughs> right? So um, I think that that this is why the question of mediation needs to be broken out of these limited ways uh, of understanding. Right. You know, it's not just media in the sense of communications technologies that can, you know, alter the you know, message between Trump and us. Right. It's all the ways that, in fact, we are. Um, kind of trained and, and, and train ourselves to live in a world in which these things make sense, right? In which Fox can be not the media and everything else can be, right? I mean, like, you know, questions of, of ideology um, <clears throat> and, and, and just kind of, you know, uh, unquestioning belief aside, right? What I, what I try to point out <clears throat> is that, you know, this is a question not just of our attachment to like the news media that we, you know, uh, watch or read every day, 
right? It's in fact a much more elemental question of like kind of how we are um, able to live a certain way and able to relate to, you know, the, the technologies that we use, the people that we interact with, the, the culture that we participate in, right? All the ways that these things, in fact, mediate a certain way of living that feels comfortable, that makes sense, and that, you know, allows us to process what's kind of being put in front of our eyes and fitted to that kind of way of life, right? Um, and, and, you know, whether it's Fox News or whether it's MSNBC, right? You know, it's not just the kind of the, the images and the voice that are kind of being played to you on a screen, right? It's, a, it's in fact, you know, like a much larger question of the kind of people that you associate with, the kind of living that you do, the kind of um, practices that you participate in, and, and kind of how all of this works in a sort of ecological way, right, to adjust you to a kind of life in which it makes perfect sense that, you know, Fox News is not the media, but everything else is. Um, and, you know, um, I know it's it's not I, and this is why I think um, people so um, people should should really be focused on the question of right to repair because if nothing else, right, the right to repair movement and I and I say this in the piece, the right to repair movement is is trying to draw our attention to those kinds of unconscious or subconscious ways that we participate in the world and that mediate you know like a certain way of living for us that often we just take for granted and don't think about you know on a conscious level right the right to repair is forcing us to kind of ask how we relate to the phone in our pocket and the company that produces it right and and the 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 ecosystem that that production you know is a part of and how we're impacting it right the right to repair forces us to think you know like more up front because normally we just don't you know we don't give a passing thought to this on a daily basis but it forces us to think, um, you know, kind of about the, the the question of ownership and the question of repair and why that is necessary and how repairing our own equipment, you know, and having the, the legal means to do so, you know, has, you know, a larger impact on, you know, the world that we're participating in. And, and, I, and I know you're, you know, broadcasting out of Chicago right now. And, and in Illinois, there is a Digital Fair Repair Act. Uh, I think it's House Bill 4747 uh, that just made it out of committee. Um, and this is a bill that would guarantee consumers and small businesses access to all the parts, diagnostic tools, and uh, and schematics that they'd need to repair kind of consumer electronics. And the, and the hilarious you know part about this is that just days before the Digital Fair Repair Act kind of made it out of committee, Apple had another debacle that only further proved why these bills are so necessary, right? Why the, the fight for the right to repair is so important. Um, so Apple released an iPhone software update, which is, um, you know, standard practice. But owners of the iPhone 8, who had previously had them repaired with uh, what are called aftermarket screens, uh, you know, at a, at a third-party repair shop, woke up to discover that uh, with the new software upgrade, their phones no longer uh, worked. So they, they no longer had touchscreen functionality. So, you know, their repair screens had worked just fine before that. But now a software update basically made those phones unusable unless they had, you know, an official Apple screen with, a, with an Apple chip in it. And this is, this is not the first time that this kind of thing has happened. They did the same thing in 2017. 
you know, Apple has routinely demonstrated that it can and will use software updates to kill crucial functionalities and thus, you know, punish people who, for, you know, whatever reason, for cost, you know, like for convenience, get their equipment repaired at a mom and pop refrigerator or, you know, do it themselves. And, and I mean, the message is, is crystal clear here. And if you take your busted equipment to a third party, like I said, if you, if you exercise what have been your traditional rights as a consumer to shop around and find the best deal to repair the equipment that you ostensibly own, right? Apple will make you pay for it. Um, and, and in some countries, you know, um, consumers are, are fighting back, right? In Australia, you had what was known as the, the Era 53 debacle, where, where this kind of thing happened. People woke up to their iPhones that had a software update, um, and people who would have those iPhones repaired by a third party suddenly couldn't use them. Um, and, you know, Apple also lost a case in Norway where they tried to, you know, do a, a repair, a refurbisher for, for, you know, using aftermarket iPhone parts. And like I said, he actually lost. Um, and so, again, the, 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 the really important thing there is that, you know, these cases bring to light how, you know, little ownership and how little control, in fact, we have over the the, the, the technologies that we use and over the relationships we build by using those technologies, right? We focus primarily on the interface because the interface is something that still, like I said, with, with the question of media and mediation, it puts us and ourselves and our content front and center and in the background in places we can't see, right? There's a whole black boxed world of algorithms and hardware and software and laws and, um, you know, ecological factors of, you know, like where we get the materials to build these and the political factors of, you know, what countries we're pulling these uh, materials out of, right? There, this is the whole kind of, like I said, black boxed world that underwrites the reality that we participate in and underwrites the kind of outdated notions of, of use and ownership that we're still applying, you know, in the 21st century. And, and in fact, that we have way less control over than we think we do, right? You know, because again, you get a, you get a software update and suddenly you lose so much of what you thought, you know, like was your property. Right? And, and, and as of right now, there, there are very little legal recourse to do anything about it. And I think it's really important for people to focus on things like right to repair and, and to start to kind of prepare our understanding of um, a holistic understanding of how we interact with the world through media and how media shape us, you know, in the process. So if people want to know more about that, I would point them to, you know, repair.org, um, programs and companies like iFixit, who have been doing great work. Um, you know, I just talked to Nathan Proctor, uh, who is the director of U.S. PIRG's campaign for Right to Repair, and that's a U.S. P-I-R-G and you can visit them at standupforrepair.org. Um, so, so learn more about this movement. Get involved. You know, like because as of right now, whenever these le- this legislation comes up, right? You know, when when in Nebraska, you know, uh, uh, legislation was was put forward to kind of break the monopoly that John Deere had on the means for repairing the equipment that farmers owned. Right, the, the Nebraska was kind of overrun with representatives from Apple, Microsoft, you know, like in these big tech firms who who killed it essentially, mm-hmm. right? Because they do not want us to have you know the means to repair the stuff that we own. They don't want us knowing that in fact we don't own these things and that they do. 
and that they have, you know, a monopolized control over these things that, that, that have such a huge impact in our lives. And we're not going to, you know, break this kind of vicious death spiral until we start to kind of break out of this hubristic notion of, you know, a fully formed self-conscious user interacting with, you know, fully formed uh, operation systems that they have control over. We have to see ourselves in much more, you know, elemental and, and interactive and, and um, you know, delicate ways um, to understand, in fact, how we're going to change ourselves and change the kind of world that we live in to make it actually sustainable and viable for us. We've been speaking with Maximilian Alvarez. He is the Poverty of Theory columnist at The Baffler, where his most recent writing is entitled The Death of Media. Find out more about Max at activeforgetting.com and follow him on Twitter at Maximilian underscore ALV. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Uh, Max had an article out a couple of months ago about anti-fascism. This week at The Baffler, he's going to have a follow-up on that article, so make sure you go to The Baffler and read Maximilian's work. It's always fantastic. Thanks so much for being on this is hell. Thanks, Chuck. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. The federal and state governments, knowing full well that cities needed resources to keep them going, instead turned their backs on urban areas. They did it with what our next guest calls the art and craft of exclusion. And in the end, it led to deadly diseases being spread among the population, and that's what happened in Flint, and it can now happen anywhere. We'll learn about the purposeful abandonment of our cities when we talk to journalist Anna Clark, author of The Poison City, Flint's Water, and the American Urban Tragedy. This is Hell. Join us next week, Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and art show also featuring live music that's saturday july 21st at carrie's lounge and second story studios 2251 west devon beginning let's say around 3 p.m until whenever you can rate this is hell on facebook and so far 152 listeners have and 150 gave us the highest rating possible five out of five stars we got a four star rating from someone who thinks this is hell is not god's favorite radio show and we got a one star rating because we are agents of Vladimir Putin. And you can rate This Is Hell and have a com- and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. We had one person give us a five-star rating this week, uh, and I really want to thank them for doing so, but they didn't leave a comment. So if you do leave a five-star rating, please leave a comment so we can share it with our listeners on the air. And this week's question from hell is, why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? Why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? Our replies read on air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite one's the first new This Is Hell shirt, t-shirt that is, which also is available to buy or win at the party. Again, the question from Hell is, why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? Leave your response at our Facebook page right now, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all of the responses. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell... The city of Flint's toxic water crisis can happen to any city, and unless federal and state governments recalibrate their responsibility to local governments, it's going to happen again. The end of civilization is coming soon, which means it's time to consider what we want the new civilization to be. A revolution is happening right now, and it might be the alternative system we've all been waiting for. Degenerate artists are fighting fascism in the age of Trump and performing at our party. All that stuff plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on 
social media, uh, Question from Hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting and sharing This Is Hell online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Alternative to alternative radio, independent from independent media, This Is Hell. Sure, we all know Flint's water was poisoned by toxic amounts of lead, leading to disease and death. But before that could happen, like most U.S. cities, Flint had to be poisoned by segregation, secession, redlining, rebranding, and a process of underfunding and abandoning urban areas. Here to tell us what really happened in Flint and how it could happen anywhere, journalist Anna Clark, author of The Poison City, Flint's Water, and the American Urban Tragedy. Welcome to This Is How, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. Anna received the 2017 Excellence in Environmental Journalism Award from the Great Lakes Environmental Law Council. Uh, She edited A Detroit Anthology, which was a 2015 Michigan Notable book, and she is the author of Michigan Literary Luminaries from Elmore Leonard to Robert Hayden. You can follow her on Twitter at Anna Lee Clark. That's that's L-E-I-G-H, Anna Lee Clark, you write on a hot day in the summer of 2014 in the Civic Park neighborhood where Pastor R. Sherman McCathern preached in Flint. Water rushed out of a couple of fire hydrants. Puddles formed on the dry grass and splashed the skin of the delighted kids who ran through it. But the spray looked strange. Then you quote McCathern remembering, The water was coming out dark as coffee for hours. You describe how the shock of it caught in his throat, and he realized as he says, Something is wrong here. Children playing in water as black as coffee. When doing your research, how did you react to these kinds of stories of water as black as coffee? And was Flint's water crisis as bad as you expected it would be or worse? Well, that interview with Pastor McCatherine is one of the earliest I did, actually, when I was working on an article that I and I didn't yet know I was going to be um, putting all this into a book someday. Um, and, and it haunted me, right. You know, just like how that, um, how a water crisis can happen in a way where it, uh, there's this like slow recognition in, in so many ways of, of, of what's going on and what the stakes are. Um, you know, there were, um, one of the myths about the water crisis, I think is that, um, um, that the residents were uh, not actively engaged in a lot of the questions um, about what was happening. Um, and they were, they did notice something as strange as soon as the switch happened. But I think, you know, um, understanding the depths of the different kinds of contamination that was happening led certainly, but also a number of other things and realizing how many, you know, what the consequences are, how we interact with water in so many different ways. I mean, it's, I mean, it's deeply personal. How little controversy did that switch from water resources? How little controversy did that switch attract when it was decided to make that switch? Did it face a public referendum? Was it a hot topic in the local media when they switched from the water that was just fine that they'd been getting for decades and decades to this other water system? How controversial, how much was that? uh, Did that have any kind of public oversight or discussion? celebrated at the time, actually. Um, The water switch happened in April 2014, and it was under state-appointed emergency management, which is key. Um, The uh, Flint had a number of financial challenges, and in Michigan, that means um, the governor's office can appoint um, an administrator to come in and um, hold the 
all the authority that the mayor or the city council would otherwise have. Um, so Flint didn't have the power of its local government, um, but and under this system, you know, the um, it decided it was going to uh, leave the Detroit Water Department that it had been served by for about 50 years. It was going to join a new water authority. And while that new water authority was still under construction, it was going to temporarily treat the Flint River at its own rebooted water plant. And they um, and there's this really infamous um, sort of celebratory press conference that they had at the water plant the day of the switch where, you know, the emergency manager, the mayor, city council members, representatives of the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, they were all there, you know, toasting glasses of river water and celebrating it as a way of the city, um, a way for the city to reclaim its independence and self-sovereignty. This the, uh, you were mentioning how it's, it's significant. It's important to point out that uh, it was a uh, state-appointed emergency manager. Uh, do you think this could, this could have happened if it was an elected official who was doing this changeover in the water crisis and uh, with the water in Flint? Because you know there was the emergency manager in Detroit, and the and you live in Detroit, and that emergency mm-hmm. manager got Detroit through bankruptcy, and now uh, Detroit is being heralded for getting through that bankruptcy. So a lot of people are saying that emergency manager did a really great job, and a lot of people are uh, commending a lot of the emergency managers that Governor Snyder has put in place around the state. So. Could this kind of horrible, toxic water crisis in Flint, could that have happened if it was elected officials? And what does it say to you about emergency management in general? I think the emergency management question is something that is, a, you know, one of the legacies of the water crisis that um, Michigan hasn't totally reckoned with yet. So we give these folks, you know, unusual authority and there's, a, you know, a fair amount of discretion over when and um in what kind of communities uh, they're they're put in place, um, and you know, there's this like really uneasy sense that when um, the state feels good about how an emergency manager um, did, like in um, Detroit, it's really um, you know celebrated. But when things go terribly wrong, as they did in Flint, there's a sense of like, well, <laughs> they're not really a state official, you know. <laughs> um, there's this real like sort of um, separation from that. I think, you know, you're asking, like, would the crisis have happened otherwise? Um, I think it's possible that uh, Flint would have um, opted to leave the Detroit water system. I think it's highly unlikely they would have tried to use um, the Flint River as a temporary water source. And this um, and this was um, uh, key because the river is um, much healthier than it's ever been, you know, or it's been in decades, but it is more complex to treat um, the the uh, the treatment plant didn't receive the upgrades that it needed to to do that appropriately, and the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, under their supervision, the treatment plan didn't include something called corrosion control, which is what keeps the pipes from breaking down into the water, including lead pipes. How quickly and how well did Flint citizens take action? I'm, I'm certain they were angry, but how quick were they to react and how effective was their response? There were um, protests and uh, public comments and um, um, complaints and questions being um, registered within a month or so of the of the water switch. People noticed like it was just a little bit strange. It felt strange. It, 
Um, some of that might have been just been because it is, you know, the river is a harder water source that didn't necessarily make it unsafe. Um, but uh, there did start to be more serious consequences pretty soon. Within about four or five months of the switch, there was um, the first of a series of boil water advisories because um, E. coli bacteria was detected. And um, before the end of the year, General Motors was noticing that there's enough corrosion on their parts that they're switching to a new water source. And, you know, step by step by step, the community starts um, um, really engaging quite deeply with this. And, and, and they, they were using every means available to them to make the, their concerns heard and to make themselves visible. Um, it's uh, I, another haunting legacy of this water crisis to realize how, um, how long it took for that to register. And you write that uh, the authorities uh, said everything was all right and you could drink the water, so people did, according to Pastor McCathern. And you explain mm-hmm. residents were advised to run their faucets for a few minutes before using the water for, to get a clean flow. Uh, the water was fine. That wasn't hard for people like uh, McCathern to believe. Why wasn't that hard for him or anyone to believe? Why would the people of Flint originally not do anything about it and simply follow the water producer's advice? Why did they have so much faith in government. I mean, it would seem like a city mm. of Flint that has been so downtrodden, downtrodden for so long that is, uh, their real needs have been ignored by state and federal officials and uh, even by city officials at time. Why would they have so much faith in the government uh, with their water when the government hadn't really been providing the services that they should be in the first place? Well, well it was really mixed, and I think that's important to um, um, put out there. So, like, the city has, there's nearly 100,000 people there, and there's definitely community organizers, folks who are real, you know, kind of pros at um, um, community organizing and um, um, know how to uh, sort of negotiate that, uh, these sectors and ask these, like, questions. And there's definitely folks who are out there, you know, um, and we're quite skeptical of what um, government was saying. I think for a lot of other folks, at least including the pastor, um, they they um, they were no strangers to <laughs> the consequences of decades of neglect of their city. Um, but I think, you know, at the time, at first, it sort of seemed like, you know, Flint had a number of challenges. This was just one more challenge. For it to deal with, you know, it didn't necessarily like rise to the top as something unusually urgent. And also, I mean, this is it's part of the miracle of, you know, public drinking water systems that we've more or less like learned to take them for granted, right? You know, like they're, you know, it, it is hard to believe in so much that, that when you turn on the tap um, to drink water, that it could cause you like such serious harm or your kids harm, you know? I think it just takes a while for that to sink in, even in a community that's been um, um, as beleaguered as Flint has been. You write, here in Flint, water was instrumental in turning General Motors, founded in 1908 in Vehicle City, as the town was known, into a global economic giant. The advancing underground network of pipes defined the growing city and its metropolitan region, which boasted of being home to one of the strongest middle classes in the country. And this is really important for people to remember, because it all came apart and fast. In 1980, 1980, Flint's medium income was higher than San Francisco's. Flint yeah. was considered the richest U.S. city for 
young people, the city with the highest median income among workers 35 and younger. In 1980, Flint had an average median income. In 1980, this is 38 years ago, of $50,208 a year compared to the average median income across the country at the time of just over 19000 a year. And it's not like... That was an anomaly. As you point out, Flint's economy had been very strong for a very long time. But by the end, only within nine years, Michael Moore was making Flint's downward slide famous through his movie Roger and Me. And only 25 years after, you have the Flint water crisis. Is Flint's fast demise a unique case? Or do you think it is more indicative of our economic system in general that this kind of slide can happen to any city at any time? were more unique. <laughs> I think even folks who have never been to Flint, um, when they see images of it, when they hear stories like that, there's some community that they do know um, that um, that looks like it. You know, they 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 recognize this. So we have shrinking cities like Flint that have been um, very uh, very disinvested in for so long um, that uh, that it has become a pattern. It's it's not it's not. <laughs> I think I think with Flint, yeah, it's 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 like living memory, right? It's not that long ago um, where things are very different. Its first downtick in population began in 1970. Um, um, it's a it's a union town, so it really did like um, uh, develop with this like sort of expectation of living wages and um, uh, working life and middle class and have a home and. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll ha- have a family, I've, you know, all these things, you know, this is like American dream in so many ways. Um, but I think um, it's the consequences of, you know, the economic system, the consequences of um, uh, strategic inequality that has never really been reckoned with, you know, um, in Flint and in many other places. Um, we're seeing the consequences of these like slow burn emergencies um, with a water crisis. I mean, in in many ways, this is, we're, it's, it's the result of infrastructure inequality that goes back decades. You mentioned shrinking cities. Um, and as I was saying earlier, you live in Detroit. Uh, how difficult and how costly is it for cities to simply downsize? Uh, in Detroit, there have been discussions of Detroit shrinking and no longer providing certain areas with services. I think there was even a map that was leaked from Mary Dugan's office last year or the year before that showed whole neighborhoods marked as catchment as if they were to be abandoned by the city. Can cities shrink? And is that the answer to the problems with city budgets and infrastructure challenges like you see in your town of Detroit or have been witnessed and experienced in Flint? Well, as you can imagine, you know, when you talk about like downsizing a city or like shutting off, you know, infrastructure to certain areas, it's deeply controversial. <laughs> you know, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, memories of uh, urban renewal highways, you know, kind of, you know, carving out neighborhoods that were, quote unquote, objectively just worth less, you know. Um, I think, you know, one of the challenges of shrinking cities is you're trying to deal with the very practical um, consequences of having far fewer people um, spread out over a city that is the same size as it's, you know, that it's, that was decades ago at its peak. Um, while also, you know, realizing that like no space is really empty either, you know, there's, you know, there's never, you know, a neighborhood generally, even in Detroit where there's neighborhoods that are, you know, they look like the countryside in many ways, you know, there's just so much vacancy and empty open fields, but there's still, you know, some homes, 
you know, and what do you do? Like, do you, do you tell those people they have to leave? Do you wait until they die? Like, you know, I mean, like it gets, it gets, it gets very, um, it gets very intense. On the other hand, you know, just ignoring the question doesn't work either. So, so Flint, for example, and Detroit have less than half the population that they had 50 some years ago. Um, with the drinking water infrastructure in particular, like that, 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 that doesn't shrink along with it. And, you know, you have far fewer resources to maintain the system, let alone uh, replace it with one of an appropriate size. Um, this is one of the reasons why Flint's water bills, bills were, if not the most expensive in the nation, among the most expensive in the nation, and was uh, part of what was fueling the momentum um, for uh, finding a new, a new source of water. Um, though, as we know now, like Flint switching its uh, drinking water system didn't make the bills any, 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 they weren't more affordable in any more meaningful way. And as you point, as the, uh, point out, as the city shrank, continue to shrink, even in, from 2000 to 2010, a 1.8% drop in population in just 10 years, that's some 22,000 Flintoids or Flintstones, as they call themselves, <laughs> uh, leaving town. Uh, but at the same time, the Flint metro region, that is the suburbs, grew exponentially. It was a widening circle of wealth with a deteriorating center. How much can we blame Flint's decline and, by extension, the water crisis on white flight? I think it's, I think it's absolutely connected. I think, I mean, that's one of the things I try to do with the book is like, uh, look at what, what makes a city vulnerable in the first place. And, you know, I mean, in Flint and in metro areas all over the country, um, there was this mass exodus of largely white people from cities in, in the wake of fair housing laws and school desegregation laws as the, um, the great migration is bringing a lot of African-American migrants from the South, you know, to these Northern Metro areas and people were, um, people were leaving and, 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 the, and they were incentivized to leave in so many ways, you know, we had, you know, policies, urban policies in place that were, uh, supporting the rise of these, you know, suburbs and hollowing out the core cities that they, um, were ringed around, you know, from the highways, to the shopping malls, to the way, you know, housing loans worked. And even if you were a white person who lived in one of these cities and thought it was terrible, you were, you could totally see what was happening. Um, you were a civil rights activist or so on. It's, it was still hard to, um, when you're thinking about how, like, you know, the value of your own home is just uh, falling and falling and falling, even if it's for very unjust reasons, you know, you, might you're thinking about your legacy for your children, your retirement, you too might be motivated to leave. And, um, and, these, and this isn't a, and this isn't a exodus that has, uh, really slowed, you know, even in just the last 10 years, there's been a lot of people who've been leaving now more middle-class African-Americans. Um, and the, you know, and while they, the inner ring suburbs start looking more like how core cities, <laughs> uh, we're looking, um, we're, you know, people are developing further and further away. Um, it's like, I, I think this, I think people keep trying to um, enact this sort of so-called separate but equal policy, you know, habit of living. And it just, it, it doesn't work. Um, it, it's not morally right. And it, um, and uh, it has very real consequences as we're seeing with, um, I think, the water crisis. 
So why incentivize people to move to the suburbs? Because I'm trying to figure out who benefits from this. You also point out that Michigan fixed their state budget by slashing money that went to cities, that went to cities like Flint to make certain that they didn't have toxic water. So who who benefits from uh, incentivizing people to move to the suburbs? Who benefits from the state budget slashing money that goes to cities? That's a great question. Um, And I'm glad you mentioned, too, the revenue sharing piece that um, how how Michigan has um, led the nation in uh, cutting the money it provides to local governments for basic public services. That makes every local government unhappy. um, But for ones that are really on the edge, like Flint, it is um, it can be devastating. Right. Um, Yeah. So who benefits? Um, I think, well, there's people who make money. (laughs) Right. You know, like all these like new developments. Um, um, all these new um, um, uh, uh, infrastructure systems, you know? I mean, one of the interesting things about um, Flint's water switch, I mentioned that they were going to move to this new water system um, uh, that they were using the river for temporarily. I mean, I think there's a lot of good questions to ask about that one. um, It was effectively duplicating a resource that was already there, you know? Um, you know, like the Detroit water system, it was drawing from Lake Huron. It was, you know, going to pipe that water in to serve, you know, uh, the city and, um, a number of, you know, suburbs and rural areas and industrial customers. Um, Flint was, um, effectively financed about a third of its construction. So even though this, so this very broke city was, um, leveraged to help build a water system that's primarily serving people who don't live in the city. And it's doing so to, um, um, and, it, and, it's, and it's doing so um, not for an, all the many, or uh, going into debt not for not only the many other um, harsh issues that the city was facing from schools to public safety or so on, but it was doing so to, uh, to provide a service that it already had, which was drinking water. So uh, you quote Pastor McCathern again, saying that uh, prior to the toxic water crisis, quote, the community was at one time totally ignored by everybody, but because young people stood up, now everybody could come on board, that they were starting to do some kind of uh, urban renewal that was community-based, that the community was actually involved in. You add that you could feel a shift in the momentum. You could see the change. There was a change happening to Flint before the water crisis. And McCathern says it was a different Flint that was coming. How close or how far was Flint to being reborn by a new sense of community spirit before the water crisis? And how much did that water crisis, excuse the pun, dampen that kind of community spirit? I think one of the um, things the world should know about Flint that it might not know is how much, um, how many wonderful people are there and how many wonderful things are happening there. So when we talk about Flint, it's often this, this chronicle of all these things that it's lost from people to industry to public services, but, um, there really are, um, a lot of uh, folks who have been working very hard to, um, bring the city they love back to life. And they've been finding really creative, interesting ways of doing it. Um, and what I love about the pastor's neighborhood in civic park is how they're, um, completely re- yeah, really reimagining what a city can look like. There's, it is a neighborhood that was built by general motors. It was segregated from the start. Um, it has since been 
just absolutely devastated and hollowed out, has a lot of vacancy, a lot of poverty. Um, and the community there is, uh, nonetheless, you know, like, uh, figuring out how to use what they have to make a more just and inclusive space that supports the needs of all people. So they're using like vacant homes, for example, to, um, 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 they're rehabbing them and, and, and apprenticing young folks, you know, in the, in the, and the skills there and they're rehabbing them to um to make for example like a wellness house where folks in the community can come and get a, have a variety of their health needs met and and another house is going to be the agriculture house where on a vacant lot outside you know people will do farming and they gardening and they can you know get fresh foods to the community they can learn skills inside in the kitchen they can learn canning um you know they're i mean it's they're 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 really doing it, you know, and 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 it, and it's and it's very beautiful. I think the water crisis has been a real tough hit, both practically, um, you know, in terms of how people <laughs> are living their lives, you know, how you know in in their um, what the future holds for this generation of children who are exposed to this water, um, in um, terms of perception of the city, you know, I think people. When you hear the name Flint, you hear water crisis, like immediately after it now. Um, and for folks who have been trying to, you know, bring people back to the downtown and, you know, um, open businesses and try to, you know, bring some, you know, community life there, you know, they're, they, they now have this whole other hurdle that they face in um, persuading people that Flint might be a place that they um, might like being, <laughs> visiting or living there. Um, so it's really tough. Um, on the other hand, you know, the water crisis has also brought the spotlight to the city, and now we have an opportunity to tell these stories, um, um, to meet these people, to um, raise them up. I think people have been are very curious about Flint. They're very curious about the river in a way that um, maybe they weren't before. And I mean, we'll see what where we go from here. But um, I do have hope for the for the community. I mean, they're pretty amazing folks. But we knew that this was going to happen. You write, 50 years ago, civil unrest tore through American cities, Flint included, and revealed how inequality was built in their very foundations. It uh, cued a national reflection from which the Kerner Report emerged, a six-volume investigation into the riots of the 1960s by a bipartisan presidential commission. That report was eventually published in 1968. With passion, the Kerner Report urged the country to recommit to its cities and rebuild them as places of opportunity. You cite the report stating, there can be no higher priority for national action and no higher claim on the nation's conscience. To what degree was the government aware, were we all aware, that what happened to Flint was inevitable to happen to some city in the United States? And what would you say to someone who says we really didn't have a choice due to the economic problems of the 1970s? We just couldn't address urban areas the way that the Kerner Report suggested. Yeah, we can't say we weren't warned. <laughs> it was it was amazing reading that um I read that report all the way through and it is, um, you know, 50 years before they like what so many things that they predicted have actually come to pass. I mean, they were there, you know, our cities were in crisis. Um, they, it was, um, I think it, the, the commission surprised a lot of people with how it really like got into the roots of the systemic, uh, racism that, um, that was fueling that. And, and it was, and it was really making the case for how, you know, we we have to be as, you know, purposeful about creating more just and inclusive communities as we were about creating 
you know, separate but equal communities, you know? Um, I mean, it's, we can't just like, you know, uh, we can't just like, uh, I, I mean, clearly, clearly think what we're doing isn't working. And if we, and, and, and neglect is going to be as a, a, an aggressive force, you know, um, in years to come, if we don't, um, if you don't act now. Um, and, and we didn't, you know, I mean, the current report came out, nobody really liked it. <laughs> you know, uh, conservatives felt like it was letting rioters off the hook. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, they were championing a more like law and order response to what was happening in cities and leftists, you know, were suspicious of it, you know, feeling like, um, they wanted, you know, like a more full force revolution, you know, um, um, that, 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 that they, they were sort of mistrustful of like political, uh, solutions to what was happening in cities. And, you know, and, and, and nothing really happened. And Nixon was elected and, and here we are, you know? <laughs> um, so, um, I think what I, what I hope to do in the book is sort of be like, look, you know, the water crisis is in a, in, in a really big way showing that, um, the urban crisis from the sixties is very much still with us. And we have another opportunity to make a choice. Like, are we going to, are we going to engage with this or are we going to, are we going to um, not see the pattern of what's happening and just think that, you know, little singular solutions or just, you know, trying to run out the clock is going to, is going to work. Is our failing infrastructure, whether it's Flint's water crisis or the one in East Chicago, Indiana, the high levels of lead found in Chicago's water supply, as well as in Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Boston, Trenton, New Jersey, or natural gas pipeline explosions like this week's in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, or in the recent past in East Harlem, San Bruno, California, Kansas City, Missouri, are these failings of infrastructure, many of which have been deadly, a testament that the current system, whatever you want to call it, late capitalism, unfettered capitalism, neoliberalism, the era of tax cuts for the wealthiest and privatization and corporate conglomeration, does this prove that that current system is a complete failure for people who live in cities? Well, yeah, at minimum, it's not good enough. And yeah, I think for a lot of folks, it absolutely is a failure. And I'm so glad you mentioned all those other, um, the things that are going on in other communities too, because again, it is, it is a pattern. And, and, you know, you, in Chicago, you, you have more lead lines than any other city in America, you know, I mean, and, and, the, and, the, and, you know, just sort of tinkering around the edges of that isn't a real solution. I mean, I think, you know, what, one of the things I really, um, thought a lot about while working on this book is how drinking water infrastructure in particular is um, really based on the ideal of the common good, you know, um, that all people should have access to safe, accessible, affordable drinking water. And um, more than just an ideal, it literally works better <laughs> for all of us when we're all connected. That's just how public health works, you know. Um, when they first try to build um, drinking water systems, they were private, they were generally just serving rich people, and it didn't work at all. It didn't work at all, because you need to have everybody connected for this to work. Um, I think that um, the facts of that are often at odds <laughs> with uh, uh, economic pressures, incentives, and um, other things that are um, informing how people are making decisions about what to invest in and um, what not to invest in, or more specifically, who to invest in and who not to invest in. And um, I, I just can't be satisfied with that anymore. I think we really need to get back to that, um, you know, foundational ideal of, of how um, 
of all people ha- having a human right to water. How important is it for our health that we address getting lead out of our living environment? And how big of an issue is it? I mean, here in Chicago, as you were just saying, we have the most lead pipes in, of any city in the United States. It's not on the front page of the paper. It's not leading the news at night. Nobody's making this into a gigantic issue, even for the upcoming mayoral election that we're going to be seeing. We're not hearing anybody saying, this is how we are going to change the lead pipes in the city. So what explains the disconnect between the threat to our health and not becoming a political priority? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. Um, I mean, with lead, I mean, this is one of our best-known neurotoxins. You can find papyrus scrolls from Egypt that are describing lead used as a murder weapon. I mean, it's no secret that lead, for all its virtues, for the many ways it can be usable, is not healthy to humans, whether it's in paint, whether it's in fuel, whether it's in the soil, whether it's in our water. And um, it just it's, it's just terrible. And children, most uh, specifically, are... Um, um, really vulnerable to it. Um, and it has lifelong consequences. So yeah, why isn't this a priority? I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we built lead into our cities, um, in, um, for, I think very suspect reasons. I mean, when you look back at, you know, the, uh, uh, the lead industries association lobbying groups, you know, how the science was, you know, paid for (laughs) throughout the 20th century, really tamping down, um, people's uh, uh, questions about lead and, you know, really um, um, making this, making it seem like this was like just how drinking water systems had to be. Um, It's eyebrow raising to say the least. (laughs) And, and, and nowadays, you know, there's so much of it. I think it just overwhelms people. It feels really expensive and really complicated. And because it's underground, you know, it's not something that, you know, residents or gener- voters are generally like clamoring about. Um, but I think it should be. I think the Flint water crisis, um, you know, at least for a little while, like brought this back into the spotlight. Um, before Flint, only two cities in America had replaced all of their um, lead-based infrastructure. And they did it not because it was an emergency, but just because it was the right thing to do. And that was Madison, Wisconsin, and Lansing, Michigan, of all places. <laughs> Lansing? Um, what the hell? I know! Like 60 miles from Flint. <laughs> and where the state capital is, interestingly. Um, <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's just, I mean, you couldn't make it up. It's, <laughs> now, at least there's like some other communities that are beginning to look at the possibility of it. I, but I think there should be a lot more, you know? The, the, um, the, the, our drinking water regulations sort of assume that there's going to be some lead in our water because uh, because we have so much lead-based infrastructure and nobody is doing anything about it. But we know that no lead is safe, none. And we just like just like with our legacy of <laughs> racism, you got you can't just ignore it. You gotta you gotta be intentional in, in your response to it, or it will poison us. So, is anybody going to be punished for this politically? Do you think that this is going to have any impact on uh, the potential for Rick Snyder to be reelected or for the other state officials who, you know, agreed to this uh, cutting of funding to cities in Michigan in order to patch up the state budget? 
Right. And incidentally, you know, had Flint had the $55 million in lost revenue sharing that was would have had otherwise had Michigan not done that, would they have even had an emergency manager in the first place? I mean, it's just, there's so many questions. Um, well, Rick Snyder is in his last year of office. He, he, he's term limited at two terms, so he is going to be exiting. Um, and we're now in the midst of another governor's race. And uh, fighting it out for the Republican nomination is um, Rick Snyder's uh, uh, deputy, the lieutenant governor, and also the attorney general, Bill Schutte. And the attorney general is an interesting figure because on one hand, he's representing the state's interests in the cascade of lawsuits that have since, you know, come out of the Flint water crisis. And on the other hand, he's the face of the criminal and civil investigation that's prosecuting a number of state officials. Um, it's all very confusing. <laughs> um, and on the Democratic side, there's, um, you know, a, 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 a longtime legislator, um, somebody who used to run the city of uh, Detroit's health department, all, you know, all of whom, all the, all the candidates have, you know, water plans. Um, we're, of all of the 15 people who were charged um, in the wake of the Flint water crisis, about, I think, four accepted plea deals, um, and a number of other cases are, you know, um, in the, their preliminary examinations right now. Um, we're about to find out, really, in the next week or so, um, if the highest level person charged, it, a member of the governor's cabinet, um, is going to be going on to trial. Um, so we'll see, <laughs> you know, we'll see when it comes to accountability, whether it's in the courtroom or um, politically. I mean, I, get, I, I mean, we're, these are some of the these are some of the things, unanswered questions that um we're still facing in Michigan. One last question for you. We have been speaking with journalist Anna Clark. She is author of The Poison City, Flint's Water, and The American Urban Tragedy. You can follow her on Twitter at Anna Lee Clark. That's L-E-I-G-H Clark. One last question for you. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate (laughs) your response. You point out that this slashing of funds to cover up the holes in the state budget went from 2004 to 2012. Now that's six years at each end of Angler and Snyder of two Republican Mm. governors, but right in the middle you have six years of a Democratic governor, Debbie Stabenow. How much is the, how much are the policies that led to the Flint toxic water crisis? How much were they bipartisan policies, policies that both parties agreed were good policies that ended up poisoning the people of Flint? Ooh, interesting question. So you're the first to ask this. You're a really good interview. I'm grateful for this. Um, so, right, we, had, we did have a Democratic governor for a while there. It was actually Jennifer Granholm, um, W7, that's right, the that's state right. senator, or the U.S. senator. Um, but, right, Jennifer Granholm, right? And she, um, she was, like, had the helm of the state as, as it was, you know, uh, on its way to a recession. So by the time she left office, you know, things were looking pretty bleak. That was actually one of the reasons why um, the state was sort of justifying why it was holding on to this money is because it was, its own budget was in such rough shape, you know? Um, but it, uh, it was um, equally objectionable and had really intense consequences for local government. But it's a little bit more understandable, at le- you know, at least just like knowing that, you know, they were how the, the state was struggling. But it did set the precedent um, for for this, you know. And once even once the state budget got much more flush, 
it 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 still it still kept the money. <laughs> it did it didn't return to its you know its previous um uh, the previous statute. And so yeah, so you know even during the national recession, you know forty five states were able to um, increase the money it was providing to local governments. Five states decreased it, and Michigan was by far, by far the, by far the greatest. And of course, with every year it held on to that money, um, it caused the problems accumulated for local governments that were really handicapped in how they provide and what they're able to draw from in providing public services for people. I really appreciate you being on the show with us today, Anna. This is a fascinating book, and if people want to know the real causes of and the history of the Flint water crisis and the promise for Flint's future, you have to get Anna's book. Again, it's entitled The Poisoned City, Flint's Water, and the American Urban Tragedy. And I apologize for not identifying Jennifer Granholm correctly. As a Michigander, I knew that, but I didn't have my notes in front of me, so my apologies. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, but no, this is great. Thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and I really appreciate you having you having you on the show. Okay. Bye. Bye. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. It's time to let this civilization die already. It's caused enough trouble as it is. What with climate change and complete disregard for seemingly everyone and everything around us. The civilization has run its course, and we need to get a new one, and fast, or none of us will survive the coming apocalypse. We'll have more happy thoughts like that when, in a few minutes, we have the return of Roy Scranton, author of We're Doomed Now. I'm sorry, We're Doomed. Now what? Essays on war and climate change. Roy was on This Is Hell in 2015 to talk about another happy book he's written, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. (laughs) Reflections on the end of civilization. Let's go to the update booth. Find out what's going on with Alex. Alex, what did you do on social media this week? Uh, Facebooks, Twitters, that kind of stuff. Sorry, I'm trying to see if I can get Signal to work on our phone. Are we over the air, by the way? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 we're over and the And you phone. know what? In in hindsight, I kind of wish you would have told me that we weren't over the air the last couple of weeks. Uh, I, it might have upset me during the show, but then I, I could have just been dropping F-bombs like crazy, and it would have probably been very cathartic. Uh, would it? Yeah. All right, well, I mean, the dump button doesn't work, so uh, I guess it doesn't matter. We could always be doing this. Um, So this week on social media, past guest, like just past guest Maximilian Alvarez, shared the note he posted for himself before coming on the show today, and it just says, don't swear on live radio, you piece of crap. (laughs) I bet it didn't say crap. Uh, No, it didn't. Um, Also, this is Hell logo designer Adam Medley of adammedley.com on Twitter wrote, can never get over how often Chuck of This Is Hell Radio says the word roof on air. In his Midwestern slash Michigan accent, maybe the only word he pronounces that stands out to my Southern Ontario ears, it has always bothered me and I've kept silent about it for far too long. Roof. Ro- wait. R- roof or roof? Well, you say roof. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, it is a Detroit thing. I apologize. I've been trying to purge myself of my entire Michigan accent and it's been very difficult. Sorry, Adam. Oh, do, you, do, you get, do you get that, to call soda pop? Uh, yes, and uh, I'm trying to incorporate some Canadianisms because I'd like to uh, say things like Wednesdays in February. 
do they actually say Wednesday? Yes, they do. Pretty cool. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm always uh, jealous of people who na- natively say pop instead of soda because otherwise, if I do it, it's just affect, it's aff- aff- affected. Affect. Affect. Um, also on Facebook, I shared a piece that I'm really into, which is an ongoing series from ProPublica on the military's pollution. Uh, this new piece called "How the Abra- How the EPA and the Pentagon Downplayed a Growing Toxic Threat," and uh, the person who's been writing this entire series, Abram Lusgarden, is doing pretty tremendous work on military pollution. Um, that's really good. And where's that published? Uh, that is from Pro- ProPublica. Oh, okay. So on our Facebook page at this is uh, Facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio. Also, I p- shared an article. Uh, called why beijing isn't marxist enough for china's radical millennials <laughs> that's really interesting uh sort of getting into what does marx mean for china in the year 2018 and also finally i shared uh brian Meir, correspondent brian Meir, explaining why brazil's jailed former and maybe future president almost got released by the coup government but then they changed their minds so now he's not a prisoner he's a hostage yeah and you should definitely follow brian Meir, m-i-e-r on Facebook. You should like him on Facebook because whenever there's reporting, especially in the New York Times or Washington Post or The Guardian, about uh, Brazil, he kind of tells you how it's complete BS and how they're totally getting it wrong. It's a re- He's a really important person to follow if you want to know what's actually happening in Brazil because the New York Times is getting it very wrong. And also on Instagram, uh, listener David G shared a pic of a Hannity billboard that is now advertising this as hell. <laughs> That's so, uh, hot. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Did you get the image from Ronaldo as well? Yes. Oh, well, I didn't know if I should say that it was Ronaldo who did it or not. So uh, I don't think he, he did it. Credit. I think he found it because I think I know the person who did it, and it was not Ronaldo. Oh, well, uh, so uh, stay tuned to Instagram soon because i got to post that too. Yeah, the bus stop over at 60th and Cottage Grove. It has some kind of fast loan place with a bull logo on it, and the bull is saying this is hell. <laughs> hey, also, uh, just as a quick note, everyone, uh, Patreon people, I sent out a giant stack of stickers soon so if uh you haven't got your stickers yet uh in like about a week let me know and uh i'll figure out what happened yeah and nate we had yours sent back to us so we need to get you your stickers it's time for listener feedback we got this message via facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio charlie writes hey there chuck big fan of the show in a i'm in a leftist punk band here in seattle that just put out a loose concept album about the death of mark fisher We're touring the U.S. this fall and are trying to route ourselves through Chicago on Wednesday, September 5th, so we can come to Carrie's and the meetup. Does Carrie's have a stage or book bands? Seems like we could have a two birds, one stone type situation, if that's the case. Thanks for all the inspiring work you do. My bank account is frequently empty from buying books from the authors on the show. Then before I could actually reply, Charlie writes, Hey, we found a show at Subterranean on September 5th, so we'll be seeing you for a while before load-in. Looking forward to saying hello. A Seattle band with a concept album on the late great critic of neoliberalism, Mark Fisher, and they're playing at Subterranean on September 5th, and they listen to This Is Hell. See, I told you we're kind of cool. Kind of. Depends on how cool you think a concept album of Mark Fisher, I guess, is. Oh, and by the way, also performing at Subterranean this weekend, The Bastard, who people might remember as being the guy who played accordion on the original, uh, I think the second year of This Is Hell, Dan Butler, who is in town to perform on his tour. 
We got an email at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com from an artist interested in participating in our This Is Art show happening next Saturday at Second Story Studios while the This Is Hell third annual anniversary and listener appreciation party is happening downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on Saturday, July 21st, beginning at 3 p.m. and going all day and night. Alan writes, longtime devoted listener and contributor, I have a pop-up gallery under the Bryn Mawr Red Line L-Stop which has 24-7 viewing. In other words, you can just walk by and look in the windows. You could choose one or some if you like these for the gallery show. My main website is chicagocse.com. Then another artist emailed us at chuck at thisishell.com. Yo, Chuck, Jake T. from Atlanta. Got some drawings I think you may get down with. Thanks for keeping up on the show. I'm listening while I scratch these out. This one was for a magazine or, yeah, no, a campaign called Atlanta Against Amazon.com. Org and our general usage around town ended up on the cover of a writing uh, made by some comrades in Chicago, by chance. Jason also uh, has a, a couple of anti-ICE posters as an anti-immigration and customs enforcement that were very, uh, let's say, revolutionary. Thanks, Alan and Jason, but we filled the lineup card uh, for the artists. We'll be telling you about those artists in just a little bit. However, we are going to forward your email to Laura Engel, who actually regularly runs Second Story Studios. She has shows throughout the year while we only host this one during our annual party. So if you are an artist here in Chicago and you're looking for a gallery space, just email me, chuck at thisishell.com and, uh, you know, we can forward your art to Laura. Uh, now, we've announced, as I was saying, we've announced all the artists and musicians and raffle prizes on our Facebook event page. So if you want to find that out, go visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Find out more or stay tuned as I will give an entire rundown of all the festivities later on this week's show. We reached out to our audience for more correspondence and our audience reached back at chuck at thisishell.com. Hey, Chuck, my wife and I are Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash thisishell. Next time some a-hole from Silicon Valley harvests our blood and brains for cannon fodder in Endless War, give me a call. (laughs) Okay. I've been writing a bit about horrors of the tech industry, but since I'm not affiliated with Stanford, no one wants to hear it. Time well spent isn't even a half measure. I've interviewed folks who work for Lord Zuckerberg, and he's more of a monster than any of the media ever acknowledges. A few years ago, I was an advisor on matters of technology and innovation to President Obama's cabinet. Somebody who worked for somebody who worked for the president rang my cell phone and said, Hey, we don't know squat. Can you teach us some things? Shortly thereafter, but coincidentally, I assume... I threw my uh, smartphone into a lake and moved into the woods. Recently, I have befriended several raccoons. Delete Facebook and Twitter? Yes, and more. Unplug the internet. I have lived in every region of America in six different metropoli. Right now, with my small family consisting mostly of furry friends, we're trying to figure out a back-to-the-land modern homesteading thing as a counter to an attack on not-a-retreat from capitalism. Big fan of your show. Think I could contribute. Love what you do. Thanks for doing it, Josh. Now that sounds like our kind of correspondent, Obama advisor, who went offline, except for sending an email, I guess, and moved to a shack in the woods. By the way, I actually got an email this week from someone who told me they couldn't get access to the internet. Seriously, able to send an email, but couldn't access 
the internet. Now think about it. But yeah, John or Josh, uh, we'll reach out because I definitely want to read what you've been writing unless it's a manifesto because I don't do well with Shack in the Woods manifestos. George also sent a guest suggestion to Chuck at thisishell.com. Take a look at the attached article. I think demographics, particularly birth rates, are a great subject for interviews. Sex and family are always catchy. Thanks, George. George includes a link to an article by Kristen Surak, which was posted this week at versobooks.com, headlined, No Sex, Please. Japan is experiencing a demographic crisis with low fertility rates and an aging population. But why does sex and reproduction cause so much anxiety? And what portents for a alternative economics does the crisis hold? Which reminds me, on This Is Hell next week, right before we have our third annual This Is Hell anniversary party and listener appreciation party at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. That's next Saturday, July 21st. We are having an all-listener-suggested guest episode to show our appreciation to you, our listeners. And we'll be showing that appreciation all day and into the night at Carrie's Lounge as well. Perita emailed us at Chuck at com. Alex and Chuck, I hope this message finds you well. I'm sorry I haven't seen either of you in months. My Wednesday nights have been uh, busy, but I'm hoping to make it out for the birthday party on the 21st. I'm writing because I have a request. I am working with a group called the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, IWOC, which is here in town to organize a solidarity event for the upcoming national prison strike set to take place from August 21st to September 9th of this year. The event is going uh, the event that's going to be here in town is going to be during the day from noon to 11 on Saturday, August 4th. At Edmar's Co-Prosperity Sphere, that's where we broadcast uh, on Lumpen Radio from that space, which is located at 3219 South Morgan Street. The event is going to have speakers, music, letter writing, and t-shirts, posters that can be bought for fundraising. Are you able to promote this event for us on the radio? Thanks again. Yes, we are able to promote this event on the radio. That's the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee Solidarity Event for the upcoming national prison strike set to take place from uh, August 21st to September 9th of this year. The event is going to be during the day from noon to 11 on Saturday, August 4th at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, which is located at 3219 South Morgan Street. And Perita... We're looking forward to seeing you at the ne- at next Saturday's This Is Hell anniversary party, too. But if you want to call it a birthday party, that's fine, because I like you. And finally, someone wrote us last week because they wanted us to know we weren't on air the last two weeks. Hi, Chuck and Nick. That's the name of the general manager here at WNUR because she had CC'd him in this email. This morning was the second week of no radio broadcast of This Is Hell. I notice other times of the week WNUR is not broadcasting. So it's not just Chuck's show, but I wanted Chuck to know that my mother has been perplexed by this as she has been religiously listening to This Is Hell since maybe the beginning, and loves the show. My mother is 87 years old and isn't so technically savvy, so I have to walk her through how to stream uh, from This Is Hell's website so she can get her fix. But her preference is to listen to radio as she wears old-school radio headset while gardening and doing her chores all morning. I was driving around and didn't realize my car radio was uh, tuned to the dead air of WNUR when suddenly I heard the familiar... Blasting from my radio, my demon is on my butt. 
So whatever channel plays that part of This Is Hell is still broadcasting. Otherwise, it was the ghost of This Is Hell haunting us diehard listeners like me and my mother, as apparently I was listening to the dead air in hopes of getting my fix too, LOL. The classical show didn't come on after that clip, or I might have thought it was Alex asleep at the wheel. No, we've had other producers fall asleep at the wheel, actually literally fall asleep on the board, but Alex has never done that. Yours in loving devotion, Mary and her mother, Jean. 87-year-olds, by the way, are our dream demographic. They have very deep pockets, and they're filled with candy. That's listener feedback. Email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio. This is hell, and this week's question from hell is, why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? Why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? All replies read on air following our next guest, Roy Scranton. Our favorite wins the first new This Is Hell t-shirt, which also is available to buy or win at our anniversary anniversary party next Saturday, July 21st. Again, the question from Hell is, why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following Roy to see if you've won. Uh, let's see, anything else I need to share with you? Nah, nah. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the end of civilization is coming soon, which means it's time to consider what we want the new civilization to look like. A revolution is happening right now, and it might be the alternative system we've all been waiting for. Degenerate artists are fighting fascism in the age of Trump and performing at our anniversary party. All that stuff plus... Hopefully getting to Rotten History, Question from Hell. A whole bunch of people want to thank for supporting and sharing This Is Hell throughout the week. Maybe twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening. On upcoming episodes of This Is Hell, yes, another end of the world is possible. This is hell. This civilization needs to die. It's made life meaningless and is actively killing our planet with climate change. It's time we move on to another better civilization while humanity still has a chance to survive. Here to talk about our meaningless civilization that's destroying Earth and to help us figure out where we can go from here. Roy Scranton is author of We're Doomed, Now What? Essays on War and Climate Change. Roy was on This Is Hell in 2015 to talk about another happy book he wrote, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, Reflections on the End of a Civilization. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Roy. Thanks for having me on again, Chuck. It's great to be on this show. That conversation that we had back in December of 2015, we got so many comments about it. We got so many people saying that it really made them very depressed, but also gave <laughs> also gave them some form of hope. And I think that that is what is going to happen if people read your new book as well. You can follow Roy on Twitter, at Roy Scranton, and you can find out more about Roy at RoyScranton.com. You write, the time we've been thrown into is one of alarming and bewildering change. The breakup of the post-1945 global order, a multi-species mass extinction, and the beginning of the end of civilization as we know it, not one of us is innocent, not one of us is safe. In the choices that you see us making, uh, how much do you see them being guided by this bewilderment? Uh, are, Are choices and decisions confused and uncertain because we live in confused and uncertain times? I think that's probably uh, a pretty good take on it. Uh, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole range of things that sort of limit our decision making and limit our, our worldview, even just simple stuff like, you know, a basic human tendency to look to uh, short term solutions to problems, right? Uh, And then, and then you add things like uh, a cultural tendency 
to focus on the short term, right? In this sort of the capitalist culture we live in, uh, you know, thinking generations and generations down the line is really not, um, it's not rewarded. And so there's a bunch of stuff that's really sort of closed in our view and made it really hard for us to think uh, outside of this moment, which is incredibly confusing and uh, and difficult and grim and weird. Uh, I mean, you follow the news I mean, you follow the news every day, and it's it's impossible to know what to make of it um, to the point where people are just right self-selecting out the narratives that they want to believe in and then following those uh, and sort of ignoring contrary data. So there's a lot there's a lot going on right now that makes it really hard for even reasonable, intelligent, thoughtful people to reflect with any kind of depth on our on our predicament. So um, that's really interesting. So if you are somebody who is on the right and does not understand anybody who would listen to or watch or believe anything that they see on MSNBC or somebody, conversely, who is a huge fan of MSNBC, they always have it on, who cannot understand how anybody could ever watch Fox News or believe anything that it says, how much do you think that that kind of disconnect that we're seeing right now is driven by climate change and a desire for us to make some understanding that we approve of of the world that we live in today. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting, uh, complicated question. Uh, I, I I wouldn't say that um, the kind of political tribalism at work in the United States now is directly necessarily driven by climate change. I think climate change is one of the major factors sort of behind a general sense of anxiety and unease. Um, but I think there's a lot, uh, a lot more going on as well, um, including, uh, including the, the kinds of um, globalization and sort of cultural homogenization that has been happening over the last 20 years that have made people anxious to uh, know who they are, right? And to, to be able to say who they are, right? I think that's one of the things going on now behind this kind of political tribalism is is a desire to be able to identify oneself as belonging to a certain group, right? And and doing that by refusing to to accept some other some other group. And it's happening, you know, uh it it's happening all over uh and all over the political spectrum. Um and you know, like I said, I think Climate change is part of the background for that kind of tribalism as uh, a, as a, a a factor of of general anxiety and and fear. Um, but I would hesitate to say like it's directly connected to that that kind of that exact political divide. Although, you know, then there's another thing to say on that, which is a point you know Naomi. Klein made uh, in uh, in her book "This Changes Everything," which is that people who uh, are invested in in capitalism and the capitalist status quo are going to have uh, a committed uh, investment in denying the truth, uh, denying the the scope and scale of anthropogenic global climate change. Because if you accept that 
it's tr- if you accept the science and if you accept the consequences of what's happening with climate change, then you cannot deny that we need to completely change this capitalist system. Like it's just it's because it's industrialized fossil fuel capitalism that's that's caused it. So uh, from that sense, you know, in that in that way, climate change may in fact be sort of directly driving the tribalism insofar as it is uh, it's sort of forcing um, it's sort of forcing the the capitalist party to double down on on their ideology um, which then provokes the similar response on the on the other side so you get you get Trump versus Bernie Sanders right in 2016 I mean as the two as the two lively agents in a in the election. Um, so yeah, I mean, and there's more that could be said, but that's sort of, that's sort of an idea, I think of, of how climate change is working in the, the current political spectrum. I, th- I think there's a lot of people on the liberal side or, in, or farther on the left who, who are, they, they don't understand. They're stymied by the idea that, uh, of climate change denialism that they see on the right. But you write, Right-wing denialists insist that climate change isn't happening or that it's not caused by humans or that the real problem is terrorism or refugees, while left-wing denialists insist that the problems are fixable under our control, merely a matter of political will. Are left-wing denialists, as you call them, actually in denial, or are they accepting the idea that the world is being drastically changed by climate change, and not only should we do something, but we can do something about it? Or, Or is that kind of addressing of climate change still a type of denialism to think that don't worry i know there's going to be a technology not not to worry we should be worrying but i'm certain a new technology will come along to fix this problem yeah to to me that that's definitely um a kind of a form of denialism uh and let me be specific about about how that's the case uh it's it's precisely in the the sort of the insistence uh, the hope, um, the faith that it's fixable, that, um, that we can solve it with the proper, uh, technological or market-based solution, right? You just get the right carbon tax and some carbon scrubbers and it's all going to be fine. We just need to organize. We just need the political will. We just need the, the right charismatic leader to make it happen. We just need the right legislation. Um, and that's a form of denial. And what it's denying uh, is, number one, that significant and catastrophic levels of warming are already baked into the system because of the amount of carbon dioxide that we've already released into the atmosphere. The Arctic is in meltdown right now, um, and there's no stopping that. Uh, we can, we could, you know, with a global revolution in socioeconomic structures, we could slow it down and even even um, maybe mitigate, but there's no stopping um, intense and destructive levels of warming at this point. So presuming that we can that if we just have the right hope or the right legislation that we can we can fix it is already a form of denial. But then the second the second way that this kind of uh, uh, liberal or, and sometimes progressive um, 
um, uh, in, in incrementalism, right, is is a form of denial, is in its faith that the system as it now operates is capable of addressing this global problem, right? Um, that the that the that American democracy, such as it is, and American capitalism, and the the global organizations um, that were built after World War II to help uh, sustain American hegemony uh, and global global capitalism uh, that that those that those organizations are capable of completely gut renovating themselves, right? Uh, that just seems fantastic to me because those organizations are all built around uh, an energy economy that is uh, driven by oil. And we're, we can't talk realistically about uh, solutions or even mitigation or even, you know, slowing down this death train until we are able to talk about complete transformation of the global energy systems off fossil fuels. It is the view then that technology or political will can somehow fix or at least address the worst aspects of climate change? Do you think, is, do you think that's a uniquely American view? And if so, what does that reveal to you about culture and society in the United States? I don't think it's a uniquely American view, but I do think uh, that a lot of the Americans who, I mean, it's a, it's a view shared by, you know, uh, technocrats working at the UN and all, all kinds of nations. Um, you know, it's a view shared by um, other nations who, who are, people working in other nations who are um, trying to come up with uh, sustainable, renewable energy sources. Um, I mean, there's politics there as well, um, you know, given that the U.S. Uh, is sort of the primary agent of the petroleum energy economy, right? Going, getting off petroleum and on, say, solar, right? That's a political move as well as uh, um, an environmental one. Um so there's that stuff, but uh, the Americans that I talk to who hold these beliefs, beliefs, the thing that seems distinctive about that that sector of the conversation is its sort of um, uh, its fervency, right? Like it's it's almost it's puritanical, like uh, it's it's religious insistence that we have to have hope and that we have to have faith in this and that like if you if you dare question if you dare question the the belief that we can fix this then you're you're an enemy like you're undermining the whole cause um and that kind of logic i mean that kind of um political attitude, that kind of political comportment, right? It doesn't seem peculiarly American or, or uniquely American, but it does seem as some, to be something that if you look historically, um, it's something Americans do and have done <laughs> and do again and again and again. Um, you know, we get really, we get really uh, 
worked up about stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You write that as the gap between the future we're entering and the future we once imagined grows even ever wider. Nihilism takes root in the shadow of our fear. If all is already lost, nothing matters anyway. How do you see our actions reflecting any overall sentiment that life is now in this age of climate change meaningless? I think there's a lot of um, desire for meaning. I think there's a lot of people, and this goes back to that kind of tribalism that I was talking about again, right? Like your life can make sense to you if you like def- if you define it as being against somebody else, whether you're against Trump or you're you, or you spend all your time owning the libs, right? Like you can you can make your life make sense in that kind of way. But then also you look at, um, I mean, if you, if you sort of take a step back and look at the bigger picture of, of our culture um, and consider, I mean, it's, it's easy to sort of make generalizations uh, talking in this way, but if you look at the, the phenomenon of uh, incels and um, the, all these young guys who are like following uh, a, 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 you know, a moron like Jordan Peterson, right. Um, or uh, the, the, the school shootings uh, and, you know, these shootings in public over and over again, um, all over the place. Uh, these are symptoms, right. These are symptoms. Uh, the, the support that Trump has found uh, among uh, Americans in the middle class, uh, in 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 the working class, uh, on the coasts and in the flyover states, you know, there's 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 a nihilism at work. Uh, there's a there's a there's a terror of the void, right, uh, and of a desire to make meaning, to make life meaningful, even if even to the point of violence, right? I mean, that's if words stop making sense, then at least you can depend on action. You can do something, and that means something. If you, if you kill someone, that means something. Um, and uh, more and more people are making, you know, are making this decision, uh, and it seems to be this kind of um, this phenomenon, right, in our culture that, that seems to be increasing. Um, and you can find other symptoms as well. I talk about, you know, the TV shows like Game of Thrones or Walking Dead or whatever, or or Westworld. Uh, I mean, you could, we could, we can do that kind of thing and talk about more specifically, like, you know, um, that kind of cultural symptom. But I think if you if you look at the culture from sort of a medium view, if you step back and you can see uh, a pervasive, pervasive nihilism and and what's more an anxiety about nihilism right a reaction against the fear that this is all meaningless and it goes nowhere right and a desire and an and an acting out uh, in order to create meaning in the world even if even in, and sometimes especially through um through action but you don't have to find that meaning meaning through as you point out, nationalism, sectarianism, war, and racial and racial hatred. Why doesn't that sense of meaninglessness lead to a search for true meaning to life via collectivism, peace, and love for your fellow human? 
that's hard. <laughs> it's hard, and it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to, you know, so I guess two things. One, um, that the, I, the, our connection to really universal sorts of values is, is quite tenuous, right? And it's, it's the project of a lifetime, right? This is sort of, we see, um, you know, religious aesthetics, spiritual strivers, people, philosophers, you know, like, like Plato, um, the way he presents Socrates, right? Working to help people over years strive toward uh, kind of universal, universal ideals that, that aren't reducible to tribalism or nationalism or sectarianism or whatever. Um, because those, those kinds of, like, committing yourself to those kind of ideals demands a kind of repudiation of one's specific, historical, embodied, territorial, ethno-religious identity, right? Like, if you're committed to, like, everybody, you know, everybody deserves equality and we need to love everybody and we need to have compassion for everybody. Like that's a huge, that's a tremendous, uh, burden. And that's a tremendous, um, uh, challenge, right? Because in our day-to-day lives, right. It's, it's me and it's maybe the people around me and I got to take care of that. And I got to go to work and I got to pay my bills and I have to, you know, I want my cable and I have to like, this guy cuts me off in traffic and it's all about sort of me and mine. And those are where my investments are. Those are where my physical embodied lived investments are. And to, so, so to say no to that, right. Um, it's like, it's like, it's like Jesus on the Mount, right. Saying, you know, you can only come to me if you give up your parents, you can only come to me if you're willing to die. Right. Um, it's this old spiritual idea that the path to wisdom is learning to die, right? And I talk about that in my first book, and I talk about it more in this one. Um, but it's tremendously difficult. Uh, it's not, I, you know, it's, I'm not confident that it's something that will ever, <laughs> will ever take hold in the majority of human beings, right? There's just, because it's a, it's a difficult thing to do. You write, scientific materialism, taken to its extreme, threatens us with meaninglessness. If consciousness is reducible to the brain and our actions are determined not by will but by causes, then our values and beliefs are merely rationalizations for the things we were going to do anyway. Most people find this view of human life repugnant, if not incomprehensible. Now, in your opinion, does atheism make life meaningless because I know I'm going to get feedback from atheist listeners and before they send those emails and direct messages, I want to make certain I have your response ready. Can you find meaning in life without religion or spirituality in some sense? Can you, do you think that kind of meaning in life is lost when you are an atheist? This is the amazing. So this is the amazing thing about being a human being, right? I'm not sure that we really have free will. I don't believe that we were put on this planet by some god or aliens or uh I don't know what. It's flying spaghetti 
monster, right? There's no evidence for that. Uh, we're animals that evolved out of other animals, and we've been extremely successful on this planet as apex predators, and we've overrun our environment, and we're probably mostly, we're headed for a, you know, a population correction um, that's going to be pretty ugly. Um, but, right, but the thing that we're really good at as humans is is adapting. And part of the way that we do that is through this, what we're doing right now, you and me, right? We're like talking, we're using symbols, we're using words and concepts to articulate um, and elaborate a model of reality, right? We're participating in a kind of collective storytelling that is the project of culture. We're making meaning. Right now, you and I having this conversation, we're making meaning. And that's what we do as humans, is we make our lives meaningful in order to organize collectively to achieve goals that we could never accomplish on our own. Uh, so, yes, human life is meaningless, but it's not meaningless at all because that's what we do as humans is make meaning, right? That's how we organize ourselves together collectively. And so this is kind of, this is the, what hope I have um, for our ability to sort of get through this upcoming transition to some other existence. Um, what hope I have is that we might be able collectively, right, to, to, create a new story, create a new collective sense of meaning, right, that's going to help us make that transition in a less horrible way than it, than it will, than, than what will happen if we, if we don't, if we keep clinging to the story that we have, right, that like technology will save us and everything's going to get better and our identities are constructed through um, consumption and, uh, you know, our cars and so on. Like, if we keep clinging to that, it, and our identities are constructed by race and nationality and so on, if we cling to all that, we're, we're, it's going to be bad. It's going to be very bad because that's, that story is not working. Um, so hopefully some we can create something new, some new collective sense of meaning that will help us make this transition um, in, in a less, less catastrophic and horrible way. Right. And you point out how we need to let our civilization die. Now, that might sound incredibly frightening to people, but have other human civilizations died in the past and humans survived with a new civilization that became something that was inconceivable and completely unrecognizable from the past? Over and over again, right? It's happened over and over again. I mean, that's human history, is the history of failed civilizations. Uh, you know, we, you know, sometimes in the West and the U.S., right, we, we have this kind of Whig version of American history where, like, we are the culmination of, of civilizations sort of building on each other, right? There's the Greeks and the Romans and then medieval Europe and then the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and industrialization. And now we're here and we've 
We just, we're the greatest. We're the best. But that's a, that's a, that version of history ignores the fact that, uh, you know, ancient Greek civilization failed. It fell apart. Roman civilization failed. It fell apart, right? Medieval European civilization was, you know, it, it broke apart. There, there, and it, and it didn't work, and it, it changed into something else over and over again. And this is not even to, you know, bring up, um, you know, various civilizations in Asia or the Americas, right? Um, it's one of, the, one of the greatest or one of the most instructive maybe um, locations to look at this kind of transformation is, is uh, in the European conquest of the Americas, right? Because you had civiliz- multiple civilizations um, that were completely destroyed by uh, the European conquest. Um, and something new happened. Uh, I, I don't think it's a great model of how to, of how to do that, but, um, I think there's a lot to learn there, right. From what happened and how, um, how people thought about and were able, able to think about the transition. Um, Jonathan, the philosopher, Jonathan Lear has a book about this. Uh, called Radical Hope, which looks at um, what the the Crow tribe in North America, how they were handling the conquest of the plains uh, differently from, say, the Sioux, and what sort of consequences there were for the for that um, for a more adaptationist point of view, right, which the Crow had versus a more resistant point of view, which the Sioux had. Um, and then, you know, there's lots of other, there's lots to say about this and, and it's very complicated and, um, uh, but there's a, there's a lot, uh, I think of interest there, uh, for us to look at. We are speaking with Roy Scranton, author of We're Doomed, Now What? Essays on War and Climate Change. The last essay in your book is really intense and it's a topic that I've wanted to talk about for a long time on this show. Uh, I found some writers who were writing about it, uh, but the way that you write about it is really eye-opening. You write about holding your daughter, Rosalind, for the very first time as a newborn and how you cried for joy and then sorrow, quote, looking out the window over the hospital parking lot, the rows of cars, the strip mall across the street, the flat, ugly, rust belt sprawl of northern Indiana, box stores and drive throughs drainage ditches and concrete and waste fields it might have once been oak groves, a world in which the landscape had been ravaged and brutalized as a matter of course and in which any possibility for living in harmony with nature had been evacuated. Birds and bees and frogs were all dying. The seasons were out of joint. And instead of grieving, people were on their phones. My partner and I had, in our selfishness, doomed our child to life on a dystopian planet, and I could see no way to shield her from the future. You said to your daughter, I'm sorry. I told her, weeping as her tiny fingers gripped mine, I'm sorry you have to live in this broken world. How do you reckon your awareness of an apocalyptic future and your, and your partner's decision to have a child? It's difficult. Uh, it's difficult uh, negotiating with the um, with a sense of despair 
that opens up uh, sometimes. It's difficult um, making sense of the choices uh, and the um, the sort of options that are presented to me as now apparent, right, in 21st century United States culture, right, I I'm, I'm, have to think about my daughter's future life in, society tells me to think about my daughter's future life in certain ways, like a college fund and, um, and this and that, and like, what's her career? Like, what's her job going to be? How's she going to get a job? How's she going to have financial security? Um, and at the same time, right, there's this deep awareness that all this is is dead. Like this civilization is over and we're sort of going through the motions at this point. Um, and so how to reconciling that is, uh, it's not something you do once and then it's, it's done, right? Like it's a, it's a constant process. One of the things I keep coming back to, uh, actually is uh, from another essay in the book. Um, in 2014, I went, back to Baghdad for Rolling Stone um, and uh, wrote about it in the magazine and, and the version in the, in the book is, uh, is the like director's, the writer's cut. Like it's a much longer version of, of that trip because it was a really important trip for me. And part of that <clears throat> was talking with people who lived in Baghdad, uh, poets and writers and uh, students uh, and cops uh, and all kinds of people uh, and even, you know, I talked to one guy who had come to the U.S. He'd gotten a visa to bring his wife to the U.S. And when he found, when they found out she was pregnant, they decided to move back to Iraq, which just, I mean, it seems like that's a crazy idea. But he found the U.S. so uh, racist and uh, and so disconnected from where the meaning in his life was that he would rather, he wanted to raise his child in the place where he felt connected to life, where life was meaningful to him. Um, and then other people I met, I talked to, you know, one poet, especially who, you know, he'd been thrown in prison by Saddam and he was so excited when the U S came, um, that he was dancing in the streets. But then of course that whole, the, the U.S. invasion and occupation uh, basically was a, a load of crap in the end, uh, and he's profoundly disappointed and very pessimistic. And yet, what he told me, one thing he told me, I asked him, like, are you, are you hopeful about Iraq's future? And this is 2014, you know, things had been going okay, there was a new election coming, but ISIS had just emerged and there was a real question about what happens now. And he told me beyond, the, he told me he wasn't hopeful, but that beyond hopelessness, past hopelessness, there is a new kind of hope that opens up, which is a faith in, in the tissue of human existence, right? That basic tissue of human existence our connection to one another, our ability to persist, our ability to persist in even the worst conditions, our ability to make joyful 
meaningful, rich lives in the shittiest, worst places, right? Human beings have lived on this earth for like 200,000 years, human beings, modern homo sapiens, right? And only for the last 50 have we had in, in the U.S., right? Have we had this kind of Saturn of living that we think is essential to happiness? For most of human existence, like, life has been pretty, you know, pretty gritty, pretty pretty scrubby, right? Uh, so, and, but there's no evidence at all to suggest that people before now were more miserable than people are now. In fact, uh, you know, some evidence suggests uh, just the opposite. Uh, you know, that, this, that our modern technology, right, has actually made us less happy than we were when we had uh, simpler, simpler lives. Uh, so, you know, the future, is, the future is inescapably grim. But uh, I do have hope that my daughter can have a rich and meaningful and worthwhile life, even in those conditions, because because that's what human beings do. But just so, to be just to be real quick, uh, clear, real quick, you're not saying that we have to retreat to an earlier time to all of a sudden start acting like 15th century human beings. I want to make sure that because in your <laughs> in your book, you're in, in your book, you say no, we can't I, let that we can't let our creativity to be dulled or to be ignored. We need to move forward, but that still might bring us to ideas of our past, correct? That's right. I mean, it's more to the, more to the point. It's not that I don't think we should. It's that we can't. You just, I mean, we can't, we literally cannot go back to the past. Um, it's just, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even, it's not feasible and it's not even possible, right, in so many ways, not least of which being that, um, you know, 500 years ago, there were probably, I don't know exactly what the number is, but there were uh, probably around a billion people on the planet at most, at most, right? And now there's seven and a half billion. Um, so, like, to live the way people lived 500 years ago is it's not possible to have this many people on the planet live that way, right? Um, the only way this many people can live on this planet is with modern technology. Um, so there's going to be, you know, something's going to happen. Uh, some There's going to be some kind of, there's going to be transition, there's going to be, and there's hopefully there's going to be innovation and creativity thinking through and working to make this transition um, less, to make this transition a change and not a total collapse into, you know, brutality and anarchy. One last question for you, Roy. Always an enjoyable and happy, fun time conversation with Roy Scranton. <laughs> Roy Scranton Thanks. is author of <laughs> We're Doomed, Now What? Essays on War and Climate Change. Uh, you can find out more about Roy by going to RoyScranton.com, and you can follow Roy on Twitter at Roy Scranton. One last question for you, Roy. And as always, it's our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, to be honest, though, having a child hasn't really inspired me to acts of self-sacrifice in the service of abstract and doubtful goals. Rather, the ob- opposite. 
I've had to start thinking about schools, healthcare, housing, and investment in whole new ways. I feel a deep obligation to provide for my child's future within the constraints of contemporary American society, which demands making some kind of uneasy peace with America's brutality, hierarchical, racist, and individualist culture. This is how young radicals become middle-aged liberal hypocrites. My love for my daughter is overwhelming and irrational, and consumer capitalism exploits that every day by whispering, screaming in my ear that if I don't do everything I can to make sure my child has more than yours, more whatever, the best whatever, and that then she's going to fall behind. The immense engines of capital I have learned possess a formidable array of forces that only activate once you've had children, when they fall on you with the force of a thousand suns. So does having children then make you more complicit in the problems that cause climate change and reinforce institutions you believe need to be destroyed to save us from global warming's worst consequences? It does. It does. Um, it, Wait, it's it, all Roy Scranton's fault. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was already complicit. We're all already complicit in it. There's no, I mean, as I talk about elsewhere in that essay, the only, the only morally pure position on climate change is, uh, you know, to, to commit suicide, right? Because that's the only, that's the only way to like zero out your carbon footprint. <laughs> Um, so we're all already complicit, but yeah, and yeah, like having a child does, uh, increase that, doesn't complicate that and, and entangle it more. Um, you know, but then it's a question, it's a question, and, and this is part of what I'm trying to think through in that essay is like, you know, how, what does it mean? What do we need? What does it mean to make human life meaningful? What do we need to make human life meaningful? And if the only, if the way we decide to make human life meaningful is to, to eliminate everything that, that we are built to find important, then, then what kind of life is that, right? So, um, if, you know, if, if the way to make human life meaningful in relation to climate change is to give up having children, right? Like, what does that mean for us? It means we're giving up the idea of the future. I mean, like we're trading, we're trading a possible future without climate change or with less climate change for the idea of no future at all. Because it's children who, right, take humanity into the future, right? Uh, if we give up children, then we're giving up on the basic st structures, uh, the, the biological cycles of human life. Um, and we can, but if, you know, again, if, we, if you take that line of thought, then it ends in a kind of self-immolation. And that's a position against which I, you know, I can, I, I, I have no defense. Uh, it's, it's a frightening and, and awesome position, right? Uh, you know, and, 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 and I, and I say that like with full awareness of, 
of the reality of it because this this uh, lawyer David Buckle right uh, did this in April of this year. He went down. He lives in New York. Uh, he's an LGBT attorney. And he went down to Prospect Park and lit himself on fire. And the notes that he left said that he did it because because of climate change as a protest against our inaction. And so he made that decision. And I I have nothing but awe and respect for that choice. I can't do that. I can't make that choice. I'm I'm in this. I'm committed to this world and life in it, complicit and complex as it is, right? So I have to give up on moral purity because I can't go that far, you know? So what I can do, though, is do the best I can to live ethically and to teach my daughter to live ethically in a broken world, right? To, to work toward... Uh, helping to create a, a new culture that can make this transition to um, a new a new world. Um, you know, I can commit to that. I can do all that. Uh, and and that's all, but that's all I, you know, I'm still human, right? Like I can't, I'm still, I'm still trapped in being human. I'm not, I'm not the Buddha yet. <laughs> so ask me again when I'm when I'm 80 we'll see but uh for now I'm I'm still you know muddling through like everyone else uh Roy it is always a pleasure speaking to you I know that the content of that might not have been all that pleasurable but I I found our I always find our conversations very enlightening thank you so much for being back on this is hell Roy Thanks for having me on, Chuck. It's always a pleasure. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. A real live radical democratic feminist eco-social revolution is happening right now in Syria. Yeah, go figure. And when you're trying to wrap your head around that, ask yourself, why the hell hadn't you heard of it before? Well, you may have, as we covered it back in early 2015, but maybe you didn't hear that week's show. We'll revisit the revolution in Rojava and how planting trees has become a revolutionary act when we talk to Matt Broomfield and Tohildan members of the Internationalist Commune of Rojava. The International Com- Commune, in- Internationalist Commune of Rojava is in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign for a new book, Make Rojava Green Again, Building an Ecological Society. To support that crowdfunding, visit internationalistcommune.com. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? All replies are going to be read on the air right now. Our favorite wins the first new This Is Hell t-shirt, which also is available to buy or win at the party. Again, the question from hell is, why can't you come to our anniversary party next Saturday, July 21st, starting at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, and upstairs at Second Story Studios, where we'll have the second annual This Is Art Art Show. Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio. And you still might have a chance to win. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from hell because. Okay, and oh, so Leo might have to take over reading these if the phone rings and it's Rojava. That's cool. Okay, so why can't you make it to next week's This Is Hell anniversary party? Ma T said, visit hell against my religion. <laughs> Chandler H says, student loans. <laughs> Madeline E says, Legs stuck in jello. <laughs> I really like that one for some reason. MJG says, I'm moving to London. Matthew P says, No high speed rail. 
William J says, my answer, poverty. Ladio says, I already went and I'm going. Rosario C., who we met last week, said, crap, I just went last week. (laughs) Michael C. says, we'll be spelunking near Bangkok. Why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? Jeffrey B. says, my pants are full of, my pants are full of poop. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, Mark A says, my mother-in-law is in town from New Jersey. <laughs> Donald H says, have a hot date through Bumble. <laughs> Erica T says, Mueller indicted me. Aaron B says, erection lasting longer than four hours. <laughs> Joseph D says, I'm afraid to meet other This Is Hell listeners. <laughs> That's very good. Fabio L says, instead of inventing flying cars, capitalism decided it was more important to invent personal surveillance devices and give them to every human on the planet. Okay. Yeah, I actually don't get that one, Fabi. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're right. Uh, Marie K says, capitalism doesn't afford me unplanned trips. <laughs> Fergus. Fergus? Fergus. Uh, says, Trump. I haven't figured out how... Y- I have, haven't figured out how yet, but I'm sure that's the answer. <laughs> Sarah F. says, I'm joining the Trump administration. <laughs> Why can't you come to our anniversary party next week? Ben G. says, I got caught stealing flowers from Mayor Rahm's yard to give to Chuck. Uh. Emma C. says, capitalism... And the difficulties of traveling while trans. <laughs> Dennis H. says, poor people aren't allowed to travel. <laughs> Ken H. Or, uh, Ken M. says, I am so engrossed in the latest episode of Pod Save America that I have lost all track of time. Oh, boy. <laughs> Harold J. says, I'm attending a week-long fundraising benefit for some cop in the Cook County Forest Preserve. Do you get that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you'll have to explain to me mm-hmm. after the show. Uh, David G. says, if you'd lift the restraining order, we could maybe talk about it in person. <laughs> Muriel C. says, I'm stuck in rural Ohio having surplus value extracted from me. It's maybe my favorite one. Uh, Mark R. says, I'm in California, but I'm sending Chicago and Rich Z. in my place. Marla S. says, so sick to, tra- uh, so sick to travel playing waiting game for surgical procedure. Good luck with your surgical procedure yeah, there. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Bo B says, because I just moved to Michigan from Rogers Park. Have fun, you guys. Ariana C says, geographic distance plus neoliberal poverty equals screw Chuck. <laughs> Adam B says, I suffer from a condition known as broke. <laughs> Why can't you come to our anniversary so party So poverty next week? pretty much is the, yeah, the yeah. reason. So I'm uh, getting a profile of our listeners here. <laughs> Mark H says, I have to clean my bathroom. Huh. Jennifer S says... Last time I went to Chicago in July, I literally melted. <laughs> Matt M says, Go, "Oh, uh, here is uh, Rojava." So producer Leo is taking over uh, right here. Matt M, what up? Uh, what's going on, Leo? Uh, all right. Matt M says, "Got it on good word that the revolution's coming. Send my regards." <laughs> Jake uh, S says, "I work weekends with no benefits. Ain't got no time for that." Nasser F says, fascist border patrol won't let me in from Hong Kong because dot, 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 blah, blah, Edward Snowden, blah, blah, Russians. <laughs> Tamara. There's other reasons to keep that guy out of the country, by the way. Tamara H says, wait, I am coming to the party. Uh, Warren L says, police drones are circling around my house. If anybody gets this message, please tell my wife I, blah, 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 blah. Um, Adam D says, We'll have had a horrible accent after mixing up kneeling at the cross and standing for the flag. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? Uh, Adam D. Okay. Mark S. says, I'm working for the deep state and cannot leave the bunker. Uh, Ronaldo M., we know him, says, my high school class reunion is the same day. Wait, never mind. Forget the reunion. See you at the party. 
Tabitha S says, I would go, but that would mean I would have to socialize and is like the millennial. And just like the millennial I am, I just don't feel like it. Uh, Andrew T says, actually, I took the day off work so I could go, but I'm going to be really bummed out if I go and I don't get laid. And since I've never gotten laid at a party in my lifetime, I know I'm going to be bummed out, so I'm not going. But now I'm really bummed out because I took the day off and I have nothing to do, so I'm thinking of going. How do you get to Harry Carey's anyway? Uh, That was Andrew T. Sarah M. says, Crossing Canadian border illegally and getting stuck in detention center. No, wait. I will be returned peacefully and promptly, complete with the children I came with. So I'll be there at like (laughs) 7-ish. Sweet. Uh, Matt P. says, I live in Florida and don't feel safe traveling to Chicago. Illinois won't recognize my God-given right to conceal carry an alligator. (laughs) Uh, Scott Jr. says, like most of your supporters, I live in Russia, and who can afford international airfare these days? (laughs) Mitchell C. says, you see, my new job's a hassle, and the kids have the flu. Uh, Kids have the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you. Dad, it's been sure nice talking to you. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Marco G says, because I live in Montevideo, Uruguay, and not Montevideo, Minnesota, <laughs> which is way different magnitude of distance, have fun, have a drink in my name, and then in parentheses, a question mark. Sweet. Um, Jason L says, got a call back for a sweet crisis actor gig that night and could really use some of that Soros cash heading in on to the weekend. Uh, Tia F says, hola, comrades. Uh, I fled debt loans in the divided states of amnesia, a.k.a. USA, and have opted to live in a different corner of hell. Miss you, and I wish I could be there. Love and solidarity. And Lisa P. says, We'll be camping with a few of my favorite little global warming hasteners in pure Michigan. <laughs> All caps. And lastly, Casey C. says, Because that guy's mother-in-law is in town from... New Jersey. <laughs> and that's all. Uh, all right. So I liked uh, Madeline saying her legs were stuck in jello. Jeffrey B. saying that his fa- pants were full of poop. Joseph D. said he's afraid to meet other This Is Hell listeners. And Adam D. Uh, hurt himself while kneeling in front of the cross and standing <laughs> for the flag. I'm going to go with. Uh, Let's go with Adam D, kneeling for the cross and standing for the flag. So, Adam D, you'll be the first person to obtain a This Is Hell t-shirt. Those t-shirts will also be available during our raffle and uh, during our anniversary party next week at uh, Carrie's Lounge, July 21st, Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge, starting at 3 p.m. We will be having uh, the third annual anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show beginning at 3 p.m., going throughout the rest of the evening, and you'll be able to see all of our new swag there. And again, Adam D., you are our winner for this week's Question from Hell for saying that the reason that you're not going to make it to the party is you hurt yourself while kneeling for the cross and standing for the flag. Uh, let's see. Let me put all this stuff aside. And, okay. And I'll even put this stuff aside, and we'll get that to later. Sorry, i got to do a little writing here. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a revolution is happening right now, and it might be the alternative system we've all been waiting for. Degenerate artists are fighting fascism in the age of Trump and performing at This Is Hell's anniversary party. All that plus 
hopefully we will get to thanking people for dropping by office hours as well as thanking people for joining us on Patreon and telling you what uh, is on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll also be getting to rotten history, all of that later on this morning's show. Live from the planet where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing, this is hell. A real, live, radical, democratic, feminist, eco-social revolution is happening in Syria, and people are flocking to it from all over the world. Here to tell us about the revolution and how planting trees can be revolutionary, Matt Broomfield and Tolhilden are members of the Internationalist Commune of Rojava. Welcome to the show, Matt. Rojavash, good morning. And welcome... Welcome, Tolhilden. Thank you very much. Uh, the Internationalist Commune of Rojava is in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign for a new book, Make Rojava Green Again, Building an Ecological Society. To support that crowdfunding, visit internationalistcommune.com. This week, Matt also posted the article, Here's Why We're Planting Trees in Northern Syria at The Independent. You can follow the commune on Twitter at commune. I-N-T. Let's start with you, Tolhilden. Uh, we must assume there are some who are listening right now who have never heard of Rojava before. There may even be some who have been following the Syrian civil war closely via mainstream media and still have never heard of Rojava. Wikipedia describes Rojava this way. The Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, commonly known as Rojava, is a de facto autonomous region in northern Syria. The region gained its de facto autonomy in 2012 as part of the ongoing Rojava conflict and the wider Syrian civil war. So, Tohildan, uh, how autonomous is Rojava? How did it gain that autonomy? Well, um, those are two kind of big questions, but I'll start with how it gained its autonomy. Basically, there were decades of organizing going on before anything happened. A lot of it was with women, actually, because they were free to move between houses and do a lot of the social organizing without being targeted the way that men were. Uh, so after all of this, in 2011, they were able, the people that were involved in this organizing were able to mount a revolution because of the state of Syria during the civil war. There was a bit of a power vacuum and they were able to step into that and take this power that used to be in the hands of the regime and distribute it to the people. Um, so right now, there's actually a pretty big area stretching from Kobani, which is like toward the left-hand part of Syria, if you haven't uh, been familiar with the geography, all the way across the top to the border with Iraq. And this whole area is controlled democratically by the people that live in these towns and cities. And there's a little bit of having to negotiate the powers with the regime, with America. But for the like living here, we live in uh, an area that's pretty like well controlled under the revolution outside of the war. It feels like everyday life under uh, the revolution. 
Tohilden, let me follow up on that question with you for a second, then we'll get to Matt, because in early 2015, we were introduced on this show to Rojava by Dilar Dirik, a Kurdish women's rights activist who writes on the Kurdish freedom struggle. But after that interview and Dilar describing the autonomy of Rojava, I got an email from someone who asked us to get back to reality as if the Rojava that Dilar described was not real. What would you say to someone who believes that Rojava's autonomy and independence is some sort of exaggerated myth, a fiction created by those who wish something like Rojava existed? Um, well, if they have the time and energy to come out here, <laughs> they can see for themselves. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's a complex situation, and you'll meet people here who you know, have their eyes on Europe and want things to be a little bit different. But in general, you know, everyone that wants to participate can have their voice heard. Uh, you're like, do you want to talk a little bit? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, when people are kind of like uh, making these criticisms, it's something that's very easy to make, you know, sitting in your so-called autonomous space. Uh, you know, on a university campus in Chicago or whatever it is. Not that, I don't know, it was your listeners who were saying these things. Um, but, you know, this is a war zone. It is in, like, a, the most contested land, like, on the face of this planet. You know, um, you know, the Americans are trying to have their say here. The Russians are trying to have their say here. The Iranian, uh, the Syrian regime, of course, uh, the Gulf states, like, everyone in NATO, everyone is Turkey, of course, everyone is trying to, stick their own and do something. And uh, when you consider on top of that, that culturally speaking, this was, you know, a, a very conservative region. It was a region where, you know, women's voices were typically not heard, where women were kind of confined to like hard laboring reproduction, reproduction work kind of in homes and working in the fields. Um, you know, these things are all still realities here. They didn't go away on the day that um, the flag of the regime was taken down and uh, the you know, the flag of the people was uh, raised here. But, uh, you know, we can see every day people struggling with these things, you know, women for the first time being able to take part in a commune and have their voice heard. Um, you know, like uh, being built up neighborhood to neighborhood, village to village. It's like a long, hard, difficult work for the Kurdish friends here, which, and for us, like, uh, insofar as we can take our part in that, like, uh, it's easy, I think, in these debates to lose sight of the fact that this is, you know, like the most successful revolutionary movement in the world today. The one, you know, controlling, you know, uh, the, the, the largest area of land, like uh, giving autonomy and freedom to, you know, the, the largest number of people. It's something, you know, quite remarkable. Um, and of course, one of the most remarkable things about it for me is that the the revolutionaries here are the first to admit there's problems that they don't say that everything is great that in their publications in their in their speeches in their daily conversation that everyone is always criticizing one another criticizing what's happening here seeing how it can be better and uh you know not taking it for granted but yes it's seeing that there are problems and working to make them better rather than just saying oh well it's not the perfect utopia of my dreams therefore i don't want anything to do with it 
I want to get to your uh, your writing at the Independent in a second, uh, Matt. But uh, and I hate to keep keep addressing these questions to Hilden, but you just answered a really good question, or really you just gave a really good answer. So, uh, Tilhilden, uh, one of the things that Matt was mentioning is how the area the, that Rojava is in is a very conservative area. How much more difficult does that conservatism that uh, the culture has in the region, how much more difficult did that make it so Rojava could have the kind of radical democracy that it does have uh, led by feminists? How much how difficult was this to be a feminist revolution when you are in a very conservative area? Um, Well, I have actually only been here two months, so I think the women that are from here could speak to that a bit better. But I, from what I've seen, it's been kind of a situation where the women that are involved in the revolution are making like big personal steps in their lives to push it forward. Like it's not an abstract thing. It's things like women that are insisting to their family that they're going to work for the security forces that are in town that are making sure that ISIS isn't able to sneak back in, or it's women, like young women sometimes uh, having to lie to their family and say that they're going to a military camp when they're actually going to a camp for young women (laughs) where they learn how to drive and swim. (laughs) Um, So it, it makes things difficult, but the women are the people that are really pushing this revolution forward and meeting them and hearing these stories of people's personal struggles. You really get a sense of how involved and committed all the women of the revolution are. Uh, Matt, uh, I want to mention the, again the the International Commune of Rojava is in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign for a new book, "Make Rojava Green Again: Building an Ecological Society," and we're going to be talking about uh, some of that book in just a bit. And you can support that crowdfunding by going to internationalistcommune.com. Uh, but you, in your article at the Independent, which was headlined, "Here's Why We're Planting Trees in Northern Syria." Uh, in your article, you quote Aden, a resident of Rojava, pointing at a dusty swath of harvested wheat fields spreading to the horizon in the Turkish border beyond, saying, 30 years ago, this area was full of trees. Then the regime sent men to cut them all down. Matt, why would the then-president of Syria, Hafez al-Assad, the father of current president Bashar al-Assad, why would Hafez send men to Rojava to cut all the trees down? What was his, what was his reasoning? Uh, it's colonization, you know, it's uh, psychological terror, it's uh, psychological warfare. Um, as I understand it, you know, the idea was that uh, to keep to keep to keep this region suppressed and to do that, you know, here it wasn't quite like in Turkey where the Kurdish people were kind of being faced quite so much with, you know, violent repression, murder, disappearances, like uh, kidnappings, torture. Like these, these things were happening, but not on such a scale. Like uh, the way that the regime here was keeping the people down was um, by, by making them dependent on Damascus. And so, yeah, here it was the, you know, imposing this kind of weak monoculture. So these, these fields, which, you know, I can see now out of the window, like uh, part of this, you know, huge kind of area of, of I don't know how many, how many hectares of wheat, 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 wheat. And the idea of that was, of course, to grow food for all of Syria, but also to make sure that this region was uh, kept dependent on Damascus because of all, all of that stuff had to be sent to, uh, you know, had to, had to be sent elsewhere for processing. And uh, moreover, 
you know, the people can't live on bread alone, that it was, you know, very difficult to grow here, different crops to grow here, fruit trees and uh, and and so on. Uh, the same thing was happening with oil, that the oil was extracted here but brought elsewhere to be processed. And so in, in these kind of material ways, people were kept dependent on Damascus. And then, of course, in general, something like a mass deforestation of uh, the land where people have lived for... Uh, you know, have lived since time immemorial, uh, is, is psychological warfare. Um, we see it now, like uh, in Afrin, like as you know, uh, the Turkish army recently invaded and in these weeks they've been torching the olive groves, uh, despite the name of their operation there being Operation Olive Branch. And uh, it's the, the, the same tactic, you know, the same tactic, for example, that Israel uses against Palestinians. It's a tactic to wear down the people and uh, to make the, make the people here feel like they have no option but to go to the city in Damascus and try and get a job or to flee the region and uh, go to Europe and uh, try and build a life for themselves there, for example, in Germany. I think that was what was motivating it. It's like a two-pronged attack. So, Tolhilden, uh, how difficult will it be to make Rojava green again. Has cutting down all the trees led to additional environmental destruction that will make it even more difficult to make Rojava green again? Um, well, right now the big problem is being in the situation of war and embargo. So basically anything that we want to do here has to more or less be done with the resources that are here like taking trees and clipping a part of their branch and replanting that, and that makes a new tree. Um, So it is a lot of work. There's a lot of work ahead of us. Uh, But one of the good things I see in society is there's a lot of positive energy toward the environment. Like you go places and there's murals talking about how we can defend the water. Or this girls camp that I mentioned before was uh, set in a natural area so the girls would have a chance and the young women would have a chance to experience the state of nature. Um, so there is a lot of work to be done. And that's one of the things we want to do is invite people to support with knowledge, if they have funds, um, if they feel like they want to come out here and be involved with environmental projects. There is basically anything that you want to do for a project it can be done here. Well, not quite, but there's so much positive energy for working on things that there's an amazing amount of space to grow. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's this kind of space which has been liberated, you know, uniquely from like state domination, from uh, state control. It's a space where people can organize on their own land and and do what they want with it. So, yeah, like as Haval Tolhadan said, like, uh, it's not a utopia here like life is very difficult here but there's like uh, the opportunity to come here to learn from the like local people who know very much about the land who know very much about the situation here um and to study together to, to build things together to share knowledge and like yeah if there are people listening who are are motivated by that then uh, you know they they should come here like it's an opportunity to do something to contribute to, towards this goal of, you know, re- rejuvenating the, this land, which has been liber- liberated at such like enormous cost. 
Well, Matt, you write in your uh, independent article, in 2011, a power vacuum opened as the regime became embroiled in civil war, as Holden was telling us earlier. The Kurdish people who attracted worldwide support uh, following their defeat of ISIS and Kobani were able to establish autonomous self-rule. Considering, Matt, considering the economic deprivations the people of Rojava had gone through, uh, the environmental deprivations that they've gone through over several decades through the government of Syria imposing a monoculture of wheat and oil and destroying all of the trees, how were the people of Rojava, what explains how they were able to defeat ISIS, which at the time had reeled off a series of military successes? How could the people fighting for Rojava not only defeat ISIS, but arm themselves so they could defeat ISIS? Well, I think there's there, there's a couple of Kurdish sayings which uh, might be like interesting here. Um, one is that uh, the Kurds are saying of themselves um, that they have no friends but the mountains uh, in English, and uh, you know these are people who have suffered for for centuries. You know, have uh, you know not had their own land, have been facing oppression, facing violence, facing a state aggression, and uh, of course, in more recent years, as we know, like have been divided between uh, four nation states and everyone kind of uh, persecuted and uh, hammered down. And uh, I think from this kind of uh, developed this other saying they have, like, answer captain, answer captain, like, uh, victory or victory. Like, um, it was it, it was never an option, you know, like, uh, not on this land, like, not on the land belonging to the people, like, uh, the, YP, the YPJ and the YPG, as you know, it's meaning, like, uh, so, like people's protection units, women's protection units, like uh, this revolution didn't just begin in 2011 with with power vacuum, as Tolhudan said. There was, you know, decades of organising going on here among the women, among the youth, like among all the people, and you know they were never going to allow this kind of force, like uh, embodying fascism, you know, embodying so much of what is wrong in this world, to to, to take that land from them. Um, and I think also there was like this consciousness that it wasn't a fight that they could lose, especially for the women, like hearing those stories about Kobani, the choice wasn't to fall back. It was, if you get captured by ISIS, the women know what's going to happen to them. So it was like, they either needed to win or they were going to be, they were going to die trying. Um, so, like, the reality of this, that there's not really somewhere to fall back to if they start to lose, like, people were so determined to stand their ground, I think, was one of the factors that made this war go as it did. And I I, I would also add, though, that, um, like, uh, this war against ISIS was one thing, and, of course, ISIS were powerful, but, you know, they were, like, an irregular non-state force, and uh, what in Efreen, like earlier this year, what uh, the Kurdish people and the other local people, like Arabs, also Syriacs, Yazidi, uh, you know, many other minorities, they were faced with a NATO army with uh, warplanes, like uh, the Turkish propaganda was that they were using warplanes like uh, Kalashnikovs to rain down bombs on uh, what was up until then the most peaceful, safest corner of Syria, uh, aided and abetted by weapons sold by uh, states like uh, the states that we're coming from, uh, by NATO states, with the complete blessing of the world and the same, you know, the, the, the same states which relied on the Kurds, which relied on the movement here to defeat ISIS when other armies were running away, turned their back, 
did nothing and uh, let people die, let uh, many of the self-defense forces here die, men, women, let civilians die, let internationalists uh, lose their life on the front line, uh, like uh, Shahid uh, Mata Anna Campbell, Shahid Helen Kericho from my country. And uh, they did they did nothing because the Kurds were useful to them back then and they weren't now. And then this also is an answer to, you know, those people who say, oh, the Kurds are in the pocket of the American government or something like this. Like, you know, where the hell were those governments when people were being slaughtered in Afrin? Where will they be when the next Turkish attack comes? Like, uh, they're not going to help the people here. Talden, uh, to what extent is Rojava creating the kind of direct democratic system that leftist activists in the global north have been seeking as an alternative to the Western style of representative democracy and neoliberalism is what is happening in Rojava, the revolution that the global north, that the West's uh, leftist activists have been waiting for? Um, So to answer the question about to what extent, so in most cities, like basically in every city now that there are communes in Raqqa, there are these structures that are set up to let people's voices be heard, to involve people. And the challenge here is getting more and more people to be involved with that, especially youth. And then once they're involved, to kind of expand their involvement um, in the project, because there's different aspects of it, like economy, arts and culture. ecology, et cetera. Um, So there's good involvement, but we always want to make it more. Um, And what was the second part of your question to how it relates to the West? Yeah, just is this what is the revolution that is happening in Rojava? Is this the revolution that the left in the West has been waiting for? I... I think one thing that was important for us coming here as internationalists was to really try and get away from the perspective that it's like uh, something which we can either something that we can transplant wholesale into the West or that it's um, that we can transplant our ideas here directly. Like, uh, I think we have to approach the revolution here with respect and humbly and see that yeah it's not something which was made for us or made for our university campuses or made for our spots or whatever it's something which was made in a society which has been a revolutionary society for for a very long time which was built you know out of specifically out of the Kurdish liberation movement which was built in the context of the Middle East um on the other hand there's a, there's very much to learn here and like the idea of the internationalist commune is really like a, it's like a, a place that's like structured and organized and you know is is a part is directly a part of the uh, revolutionary youth structure here and uh where like western leftists who are kind of serious and committed about challenging their preconceptions challenging their ideas of what revolution and struggle are can come here and educate themselves be educated by the kurdish movement uh learn the kurdish language study together, spend time with internationalists from different continents all over the world, work in society alongside the Kurdish movement, and begin to develop revolutionary perspectives for our, for our struggles back home as well. And like this also is a long, hard process. Like, uh, Of course, there are things about the way the revolution was done here, which wouldn't really make sense in our 
very liberal societies as opposed to the conservative society here. But I think the the, the principles of the revolution on, you know, a direct democracy, on the, the women's struggle not being something which follows the revolution, but being the revolution, leading the revolution, and of course on ecology, uh, these principles and the ideas of Abdullah Ocalan, like, uh, are something which we are studying here and uh, discussing often with Kurdish friends with one another, and which we hope to use to build something more effective in our home countries than uh, the, for me, quite sorry state that we have today. But Matt, you write that this book that you, uh, I just want to mention it one more time, The Internationalist Commune of uh, Rojava is in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign for a new book, Make Rojava Green Again, Building an Ecological Society to support that crowdfunding. Visit internationalistcommune.com. You write this book is a seed, the fir- a first step helping us to connect with ecological struggles across the globe and work together through the shared ideals of the Rojava revolution. Our Rojava and the other communal areas, then, not the only places where a feminist and ecological society is being forged. Is this happening elsewhere around the world right now? Of course. I mean, um, uh, there, you know, there are, there are other struggles. I like to give a concrete example. Um, we were, like this week, uh, talking with comrades in uh, the West Bank in Palestine who are kind of trying to build ecological alternatives uh, there, uh, sort of uh, ecological like autonomous uh, ways, ways to um, provide energy specifically and to recycle water uh, if I remember correctly um, to give another example in uh, October uh, there will be a, a festival in Hamburg which is uh, all about this which is it's 50 years after um, uh, another, another kind of festival gathering which happened there like against the Vietnam War which brought together 5,000 internationalist revolutionaries from all over the globe uh to kind of share ideas and uh learn from the ideas of the Vietnamese movement and um this uh, this festival in Hamburg will be another opportunity to do the same and you know these these are just a couple of examples but uh we're you know trying to share like this with as many people as we can in as many countries as we can in, in as many struggles as we can and then this is something like uh very like important important in the ideology of the movement and the ideology of uh of Abdullah Ocalan is uh, the yeah, le- le- learning from each other, and it and it doesn't matter whether you know different people different people know more and different people know less. But uh, there are people who are forty years of revolutionary. There are friends here who are you know nineteen and just arrived from Europe, and uh, there's uh, everyone in between. And uh, we can all criticize one another's struggles. We can all see. The contradictions in one another's struggles, we can all see where they fall down, and we can all learn from where they succeed. And like uh, the, the the movement here is really against like a dogmatic approach, which says like our way is the only way. And if you're not following uh, this book to the letter of the law, then uh, you're no you're no part of this revolution. Like it's it's not about that. It's about criticizing one another, learning from one another, and uh, you know building networks which cross over like uh, borders, which cross over nation states and which, like, uh, unites struggles across the globe. Yeah. I'm also uh, currently the only person from North America in the commune, and sometimes it's very disappointing because I feel like people coming from different backgrounds, like more 
um, in Mexico or coming from indigenous struggles would have so much to add to this conversation here that I'm not able to. So if anyone has these kind of perspectives and would like to enter into a conversation with us in the Kurdish movement, we'd love to have your voices. Find us, send us an email. <laughs> Told in that well, that leads me to a good question to ask you because in the book it talks about how uh, observing and criticizing isn't enough. Uh, so let's talk about what's happening here in the states for a second and kind of apply to what you have seen and learned there. Does a resistance need to do more than observe and criticize? How does only observing and criticizing fall short in any fight against authoritarianism? Um, yes, of course, it has to be more than observing and criticizing. Um, the big thing that we see here is just like the level of involvement people have with each other. Part of that is because of the traditional ways here that are still more in place, like the villages, the family structures, the connections that people have to each other. People just know each other here in a way that we don't get a chance to as much in America. And I feel that people want it, but it's hard when you have two jobs, you meet with people that aren't in your neighborhood, you're having to drive a lot, you know, things like this that are part of living in the capitalist system. So I think our organizing, I see people going in inspiring directions, leftists wanting to meet with other leftists, um, collaborate with people across different communities, but it also falls down to a neighborhood level too. Just simply knowing the people around you, being able to have conversations with people who might have wildly different opinions, that kind of thing we see happening every day here. Uh, Matt, um, you write, our commune is also unique, providing a place for internationalists from across the globe to learn from the revolution and contribute to the struggle for a feminist and ecological society. Now, a past guest on our show, anthropologist David Graeber, he's visited Rojava and dating back to 2014, David's been writing about it in publications like The Guardian. In fact, back in 2014, he had a story posted that was entitled, Why is the World Ignoring the Revolutionary Kurds in Syria? To you, Matt, what explains why the story of Rojava is not a bigger story in the international press? And is it a bigger story in the Middle East than it is in the West? Well, the thing is, like, kind of after David was writing that article, it did become a big story. You know, like, uh, there was the, the resistance in Kobani, and suddenly there were these exotic Kurdish women with their headscarves and their Kalashnikovs all over the news. There's like a movie, a big movie been made about it this year. I think it's called Women, Women of the Sun. And like somehow this like westernized vision of what's happening here uh, kind of kind of got created. It seems like what really was happening was people were very wrongly seeing the Kurds as like the West's like outpost in the Middle East, you know, like uh, they have fighting for secular values, therefore they're like the West, so the Kurds aren't also, you know, well, A, many of them are Muslims, and uh, B, you know, fighting also against the very capitalist modernity and liberal values that, uh, that, that the West embodies. And so I think what happened was, you know, they couldn't be ignored what was happening here, especially in the fight against Daesh, but it got co-opted and uh, you know you're made into a tool to beat these like scary muslims with like why can't you be more like kurds and you know people who have this approach would sort of get a shock when they come here and they see that it's the middle east you know it, it, it's not europe it's a very radically different uh way of structuring society and these are narratives and stories which are 
which, which are not so interesting and uh, which don't really fit into this like uh, very kind of yeah like positivist narrative na- narrative of, of good guys versus bad guys that it's about a revolutionary struggle it's a struggle with many contradictions inside it and uh, this is something which you know of course you won't get so much coverage for um and so like with that in mind that's like i think important work for us here at the commune like uh, to kind of de- demystify what's happening in rojava a bit and to kind of take away some of the like voodoo and you know the like critical back and forth that happens in in the left press and just to show like a little, like a little bit like uh what you know what what daily life is like here as best we can um and to show that revolution you know uh like in the ideas of the movement like revolution is not just armed struggle against an oppressor like the majority of revolution is against yourself struggle against yourself like struggle in your neighborhoods in your communities like uh challenging patriarchal attitudes in myself as a man challenging orientalist uh, attitudes in ourselves as westerners um and but yeah for all the people like uh working on themselves and working together to build a better society like that's the rojava revolution what's happening in the communes what's happening here in our commune what's happening in the women's structures kind of day by day week by week um like this is the revolution not only the sacrifices made against daesh i've got one more question for each of you we've been speaking with matt broomfield and tolden who are members of the internationalist commune of rojava the internationalist commune of rojava is in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign for a new book make rojava green again building an ecological society to support that crowdfunding visit internationalistcommune.com that's internationalistcommune.com. And you can follow the commune on Twitter at commune INT. Now, our last question for every guest we ever have on our show is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. Tolden, let's start with you. Can what you have learned... Uh, what is happening in Rojava, what you've learned about how to have radical democracy, a feminist and uh, eco-social state, if you will, uh, can, uh, can that help in defeating in the West rising fascism? Can the lessons that you learned in, that you have learned so far in Rojava and will continue to learn help in the West's fight against fascism? Um, well, I would say definitely yes, especially more so if I was in Yepage. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think this experience of talking to people is really what it's about, like knowing people, talking with them, understanding their perspective, and then doing what you can to change it. Um, when I actually, when I was out there before I came over, I had some experience with someone who was a little bit seduced by the alt-right, not to the point of agreeing with all of it, but being like, oh, they're maybe interesting and have some things to say. And just this process of kind of getting to know him, have some conversations, you know, now at this point where he's at now, he's kind of changed his opinion. And you see the same kind of process here where it takes a long time sometimes to change people's minds, but having these conversations and being open to it and knowing that you just have to take step by step, it works. And Matt, our question from hell for you is, 
To what degree is radical democracy in Rojava, to what degree is that a seen by Syria and Turkey as a threat? Is this more, uh, is the reaction by Syria and Turkey more an anti-Kurd reaction, or is this an anti-radical democracy, or is it both? I think... Especially in the case of Turkey, like uh, they won't they won't stop until they've uh, obliterated what's happening here. Like uh, the Turkish state, you know, oppression of an attitude towards Kurds, like is also its attitude towards women, like is also its attitude towards leftists, is also its attitude towards democracy. Like these these things are all one and the same. You know, like this is a, a fascist state, a fascist state supported by. <laughs> another fascist uh, state not so very far from you um supported by nato um and like any other fascist state it needs its um it needs its other it needs its like dehumanized object and that object is the kurds um and it's also women and uh, it's also what the kurds are trying to build up like uh all, all the powers of the world, like uh, it sometimes feels like uh, are concentrated on this sort of small strip of land, this few million people that are here, like uh, in the time of war, like uh, by fighting Daesh, it was that we were able to buy a little time here. And now it's it, it's scary here, you know, like um, we don't we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in the next month. We saw that Turkey obliterated Eprin. And uh, nothing was done. And uh, sooner or later, like uh, Turkish tanks will quite likely roll over the horizon here. But uh, we know what they're trying to destroy. Like they're trying to destroy the women's revolution. They're trying to destroy, um, uh, yes, uh, social democracy. They're trying to destroy the ecological revolution too by burning trees and so on. And uh, that, that that gives people strength there. Like before, like before I came, I thought I would arrive and people would kind of be defeated. They would see that Turkey was advancing, that uh, nothing was being done by the West and that they would have kind of given up on these ideas of uh, organizing, you know, democracy and communes and so on to focus on the struggle. But it, it's not like that at all. Like uh, people see that this is the fight. This is the resistance against Turkey. Like this is the struggle. Um, so to, yeah, to, to answer your question, like the, the, two, the two things are not separable. And uh, nor is it limited to Syria and Turkey. Like it's also the NATO states who are selling arms and uh, turning their back on the region, who are allowing the massacres and massacres that have taken place and likely will take place in the future to occur. Like they're all terrified of what's happening here, and so that's why uh, we need people to come here. We need people to defend this land uh, through civil means, uh, like we do here at the Commune, or you know uh, through the other structures as well. And uh, in the face of these states all uniting against uh, the the revolution here, we need uh, revolutionaries from America, from all over the globe, to uh, stand alongside the Kurds and the, the people here and say that we're not going to allow this to happen. We're not going to allow it to be destroyed. Here. Matt and Tolden, thank you so much for being on this week's show. Again, the Internationalist Commune of Rojava is in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign for a new book, Make Rojava Green Again, Building an Ecological Society. To support that crowdfunding, visit internationalistcommune.com, where you can find out more about the Internationalist Commune. Thank you both so much for being on the show this week. It really has been an honor and a pleasure, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you. Ciao, Captain. (laughs) Ciao, Captain. 
Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is Hell. Degenerate artists are not only challenging fascism, but they're performing at next Saturday's This Is Hell third annual 20th anniversary party and art show. We'll talk to one of those artists when we speak with the founder of Degenerate Artists Against Fascism in a few minutes, the very talented musician Ted Sirota. This Is Hell is hosting our third annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party at Carrie's Lounge next Saturday, July 21st. Beginning at 3 p.m. and going on into the night at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. There's going to be food, a raffle, live music, an art opening. Music will be performed by Ted Sirota and Dan Chase, followed by Vivian Garcia, Abraham Mellish with Chris Paquette, and wrapping up the night will be Craid. Upstairs, we'll have the second annual This Is Hell, or This Is Art art show at Second Story Studios. Featuring artists, uh, featured artists include Luke Brecken, who did all of the Chicago Underground Film Festival awards for several years. They were all very unique. Uh, Ian Lance, who runs the Pullman Cafe, which I believe is the only business that's within the National Historic District around uh, Pullman. Julie Murphy, you can find her work online, juliemurphy.net, I believe. I'm not too sure. I can't remember now. Laddie Scott Odom, uh, Ron Pollard of We Kill Everything, and Vicky Jalagi. Now, you can see all of their work and find links to all of the musicians' performances or music that they've created at our Facebook event page. Just go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Raffle prizes include photos by Ron Pollard of wekilleverything.com, new This Is Hell swag, zero euro notes featuring Carl's, Carl Marx, books recently featured on the radio show and podcast, and a whole bunch more that we can't even mention on the air. We'll also be revealing the new This Is Hell broadcast studio, whether it's functioning properly yet or not, that doesn't matter. We'll show you the work that we have gotten done so far. We'll be posting links, as I said, to all the artists and musicians every day up to the party. So keep going back to our Facebook event page, facebook.com slash Radio to find out more. That's This Is Hell's third annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party at Carrie's Lounge next Saturday, July 21st, beginning at 3 p.m. and going on into the night. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. To find out more, again, go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, degenerate artists are fighting against fascism in the age of Trump and performing at our party next week. That stuff, plus I hope to get back to rotten history. We've got so much stuff backed up up here. Well, we'll see what gets going. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism. Since 1996, this is hell. Degenerate artists are fighting against fascism and playing at next Saturday's third annual This Is Hell anniversary party at Carrie's Lounge. Here with us is one of those degenerate artists, musician Ted Sirota, is a drummer and founder of the organization Degenerate Artists Against Fascism. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ted. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me on. Really looking forward to having you, not only uh, talking to you here this week, but next week having you at the party. Last week or last year, you were absolutely amazing. And when I was talking to Pete Valavanis, the owner of Carrie's Lounge, I was like, who should we get as musicians? He said, the first person we got to get back is Ted. So I really appreciate you being back on the show and back uh, celebrating with us next week. Now, the Facebook page for Degenerate Artists Against fascism features a list of the group's points of unity. The points of unity states, we understand the historical lesson of Entartkunst, or degenerate art, 
In Nazi Germany, we will spread the story of degenerate art whenever and wherever possible. For those who do not know, what was Entart Kunst? What is the story of degenerate art? Well, uh, Entartete Kunst, you know, degenerate art in German. <clears throat> when Hitler came to, uh, came to power in 1933 as chancellor, like, one of the very first moves that he made literally was, was to attack the arts and the artists. So pretty quickly they declared modern art illegal. Um, they banished it. You know, it, Germans were coming out of the Weimar Republic, which was kind of a flourishing of, for those that, that didn't, don't know the history, you know, there was a flourishing of, of a burgeoning democracy there. Uh, there was a cultural flourishing, and, and uh, the Nazis were, <clears throat> you know, diametrically opposed to this. And Hitler, being a failed artist, I think it had something to do with uh, his sort of obsession with art. But at the same time, and the most important thing was that he understood from being an artist, probably, or, you know, just being a fascist, he, he understood the power of art and how it un unlocks people's imaginations. Um, it presents things that seem impossible and, and you know, allows people to break out of the, the cages in their mind. And then in order to build the kind of society that they were looking to build there, they couldn't tolerate that, you know? So uh, one of his first moves was to announce the building of a new national museum in Munich. And um, that was in 1933 where he announced where they started building it. And then it was finished in 37. And in 1937, they held a national uh, art show there. And then across the street and another gallery, much smaller um, with uh, the artwork, vandalized hanging on the wall and crooked and graffiti on them and on the walls um pointing out the art as and calling it bolshevik and jewish and uh negroid in nature sometimes uh was the degenerate art show and this was the counter image of what was going to be tolerated so on one side of the street you had these very um you know picturesque and aryan looking paintings of people with perfect bodies and and very classic art, you know, artwork. And then on the other side, you had Picasso, you had Otto Dix, you had Max Beckman, you had Kandinsky and all, uh, Mark Chagall and all these great artists with their work that was stolen and looted by the Nazis and now was being put on display. And the German people lined up to, uh, two million people came through the degenerate art exhibit. It, it dwarfed the crowd for the official <laughs> art exhibit because German people were coming and lining up to say goodbye. <clears throat> to modern art. Um, and that is what happened. And then artists in Germany, uh, first starting with, uh, you know, Jewish art historians, professors, gallery owners, uh, once modern art was declared, you know, was banished, then they started going after the, the people who were showing it and, uh, and attacking the artists themselves. So many artists fled, you know, early on in 33, 34. Um, others stayed, um, but any way you slice it, it was a complete, you know, nightmare and disaster for, for art, for artists. And some people tried to escape it, like, uh, and many did, but one artist in particular, Felix Nussbaum, left early uh, from Germany. And, you know, when Hitler came to power, he wanted, he, he decided to get out. So he went to Belgium. But then when the Nazis invaded Belgium, uh, he was found there and arrested and he was brought on a march back to a prison camp. And he escaped during the march, and he ended up hiding in Berlin for a period of time. 
where eventually he was uh, captured again by Nazis and he ended up dying in Auschwitz. So uh, <laughs> that's, a, I guess, it maybe in a nutshell, um, you know, a little background on, on uh, degenerate art. But yeah, degeneracy and- is a big, you know, uh, if you read any of the Nazi literature or listen to them, they were obsessed with, you know, degeneracy, quote unquote, you know, not the, the breaking down of the, the perfect genes to create the Aryan race, basically. Yeah, and there was a great uh, touring degenerate art uh, show that was at the Art Institute. I think it was in the mid-90s that was just absolutely stunning. Now, the Points of Unity also states, we understand that artists have already come under attack, and this will only accelerate under a Trump-Pence regime. We must resist now. How have artists already come under attack? Uh, you know, This was written right at the beginning of the Trump administration, but how have artists already come under attack during the Trump-Pence administration so far? Well, I mean, there's myriad ways and, and, you know, a lot of different levels. Because one thing, like, there's so many fires and emergencies going on in the world right now. People aren't talking about things like the fact that Donald Trump has had no art whatsoever in the White House. I mean, he hasn't had any concerts. Um, you, you know, obviously he has no sense of culture. And then when you look at Betsy DeVos and, well, I mean, look what Ronald Reagan did to public schools and, and the music programs. And now you fast forward to what they're doing with Betsy DeVos. I mean, what kind of hope do we have for, for art in this society, you know? Um, but on the other hand, right away, he started making direct attacks, like uh, when they sent Mike Pence to go see Hamilton. And um, and the cast made a made a statement, you know, and he broke out of their their daily routine of the script and, and actually made a, you know, a statement on behalf of themselves and humanity and art. And Donald Trump attacked them immediately on, on Twitter. And, um, you know, we're not in Nazi Germany in 1933. We're in the U S and we're in the most modern, most advanced, the, the biggest military power in the history of the world. It's not a direct parallel. So, but you know, when, when the president of the United States, the most powerful person in the world, attacks an artist, you know, um, like Michelle Wolf or, or, um, uh, Nancy, uh, what's her name? Uh, Griffin. Uh, yeah. Nancy Griffin. Yeah. Who did that? Um, the photograph holding the fake head, right. head of Trump. I mean, you could go on and on. He's, he's, he's bashed and, you know, but if he, if somebody says something or, who essentially, as we're calling a fascist leader, he has a base of fascists. You see them going out and attacking people and murdering people. Um, so it's only a matter of time before they start, you know, I mean, this is a process. It doesn't happen, you know, uh, overnight. And that's a mistake that people make over and over. I see with, with Nazi Germany is, uh, you know, I was just reading this article in Slate with this, you know, the foremost expert. And the first thing he says is that, you know, Nazi Germany was gassing people and, you know, throwing uh, crippled people into ovens, basically. You know, the U.S. is nothing, you know, U.S. is separating parents from their children. And, well, you know what? It didn't start that way. People are continue to compare the United States in 2017-18 to Germany in 1939-1940-1941. And that's if you do that and you're supposed to be a, uh, you know, an expert on fascism, you're missing the very first, you know, tenant of, 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 of being able to detect it, which is that, you know, they do, they, they, they'll make rapid advances, but they'll also do death by a thousand cuts. 
you know, and before you know it, for instance, like with the Muslim ban, um, now it's in effect, you know, people forgot about it after a while. They went out, they thought we stopped it. And then quietly it went through the courts and now they're filling up the courts with their fascist judges and things are being decided in the courts. And, you know, so I'm sorry, but I kind of got off, off track there with the arts, but I don't think that Trump has attacked artists and, and art directly in the same way that Hitler went initially, you know, he, that was something um, I would say sort of unique to Nazi Germany was how fixated he was on the art and, and the power of art. You know, I don't think Donald Trump really knows that or his regime. They, they're aware of that, but they're concerned more with, you know, like in Germany, they had first they came for the communists. You know, Pastor Niemöller's poem. Then they came for the trade unionists. They came for the Jews. Well, here it's a different order, you know. Ted, I really appreciate you being here today to talk about your organization. Again, it's called Degenerate Artists Against Fascism. You can find out more about and see their page on Facebook at facebook.com slash degenerate artists. And Ted will be performing with Dan Chase at our annual anniversary party next Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The party begins at 3 and Ted and Dan will be performing at 4 p.m. Learn more about Ted's music at tedsirota.com. I really appreciate you being on the show this week. Really appreciate you being part of the party next week. Thanks for coming on, and I'll see you uh, next Saturday. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell at thisishell.com. There's now a couple ways you can do that. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support. Thanks this week goes out to the religious-like tithing support of Kilter. This is Hell is hosting our third annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party at Carrie's Lounge next Saturday, July 21st, beginning at 3 p.m., going on into the night at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Now, on next week's show, in honor of our listener appreciation party, all of our guests will be guests suggested by listeners, and we'll be announcing who those guests are throughout the week on social media, on Twitter, at This Is Hell Radio, and on uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And, of course, we are going to have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. You can now become a supporter of This Is Hell via Patreon. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash thisishell. On this week's Patreon podcast that you can hear only by signing up as a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash thisishell is our next chapter in our Patreon series, An Oral History of the Iraq War, as it happened here on This Is Hell. This edition featured our 2005 interview with former U.S. Army Captain James Yee, author of For God and Country, Faith and Patriotism Under Fire. Jim was the Muslim Army chaplain who the U.S. wrongfully accused of spying and stealing secret documents, as well as possessing pornography and adultery, all for doing what he was ordered to do and commended for doing. The military even disappeared Jim, and Jim's wife almost commits, well, you got to hear the interview to believe what you will not believe. Patreon.com slash this is hell. Go there to show your support. We want to thank Joseph S. for signing up this week on next week's um, uh, Patreon podcast. Immediately following Barack Obama being elected president in 2008, we talked to Frances Fox Piven about an article she had just posted titled Obama Needs a Protest Movement. At the time, the protesters who had resisted the policies of the Bush administration were arguing over what they should do under an Obama administration. Should they quit Quit pushing for everything they wanted when Bush was in office, specifically an end to the war on terror. 
Francis Fox Piven argued at the time of her article that Obama needed a protest movement to ensure that the wars would end. Of course, that's not what happened, and he only expanded the wars. But if you want to hear that interview, you've got to sign up as a Patreon patron by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, naughty nauseous, nerdy, rotten history. In 1798, 220 years ago, President John Adams signed into law the Sedition Act, which curtailed freedom of the press in the United States, sanctioning fines, imprisonment, or deportation for anyone guilty of, quote, false, scandalous, or a malicious writing against the United States government. In other words, John Adams was the Donald Trump of his time. More than 20 newspaper editors were arrested or imprisoned before the law was neutralized by widespread public and political opposition. Yeah, but this was before Fox News Channel. Back then, they had to settle for the Fox News Gazetteer, and its circulation was mostly on New York's Upper East Side. Though the law obviously violated the First Amendment, the Supreme Court's right to review a law's constitutionality had not yet been established in the Young Republic, and with the right controlling the Supreme Court today, who knows how they would rule on a fake news case. So Adams' political foes, including Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, turned instead to state legislatures as channels of opposition, and with the right controlling most state legislatures today who knows how they would rule on a fake news case. By drafting legislation against the Alien and Sedition Acts, the state legislatures bolstered the argument for state resistance to federal authority, thus opening a Pandora's box of legal uncertainty that would haunt the nation through the end of the Civil War. So anti-fake news legislation reinforced the power of the states relative to the federal government, which prolonged abusive conditions, in this case slavery, and led to the Civil War. Yeah, that sounds about right. So everybody get ready for Trump's Fake News Act and Civil War II. Damn it, I really wanted to get to the rest of rotten history because I spent a lot of time writing this. Uh, But I just don't have that time because we're running out of time right here and right now. Uh, Don't forget, this is how office hours happen this and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Also at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. We want to thank everybody who dropped by this week. But we want to see each and every one of you at our third annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show also featuring live music that's next saturday july 21st carrie's lounge 2251 west devon in chicago's little india neighborhood uh and we want to thank everybody who shared the show online this week but again i can't get to the entire list right now as we are up against the clock All right, let me tell you what happened on this week's show very quickly. First of all, thanks to Alex for producing this morning's show. Thanks for Leo uh, producing the show as well. Thanks to Ronaldo for all your work on Rotten History. We truly appreciate it. And thanks for sharing that image of a uh, This Is Hell subvertising sticker down at the 60th and Cottage Grove bus stop, which we'll be posting shortly. We also want to thank... Musician Ted Sirota, a drummer and founder of the organization Degenerate Artists Against Fascism. Find out more at facebook.com slash degenerate artists. And Ted will be performing with Dan Chase at next week's party. So make sure you come to that to see them play. Ted is an amazing performer, as is Dan. We want to thank Matt Broomfield and Tolden, members of the Internationalist Commune of Rojava. Internationalist Commune of Rojava is in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign for a new book, Make Rojava Green Again, Building an Ecological Society to support that crowdfunding, visit internationalistcommune.com, internationalistcommune.com. Also, thanks to Royce Granton for returning to This Is Hell to talk about his new book, We're Doomed, Now What? 
essays on war and climate change. Thanks to journalist Anna Clark, who is the author of The Poison City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy, which is a fantastic book. And if you really want to know what happened in Flint and what can happen to a city near you, you should read Anna Clark's book. Thanks to Maximilian Alvarez. Uh, we talked to him about his most recent Baffler column, The Death of Media, The Planet Chokes on Electronic Waste, and a Recycler Goes to Prison. And this week's Hangover Cure is Indonesia's and Singapore's favorite Hangover Cure, Kaya Toast. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.